Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Jim, can you tell us about the Freedom of Choice initiative uh, that you went to school under in North Carolina? Um, Freedom of Choice was a last-ditch effort on the part of white schools uh, it happened. It was a phenomenon that happened all over the South. Uh, schools had been resisting since the the 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education decision. White schools in the South and elsewhere had been resisting um, integration. Under freedom of choice, theoretically, any member, a member of either school system, could attend the other. Um, this was intended to encourage a token integration of the white schools. The assumption was that no white students would elect to go to the black schools, but maybe a handful of black students would elect to go to the white schools. And this would satisfy the the courts, and integration then would stop at that point. So we in North Carolina, we had two years of this Freedom of Choice program. Nineteen In my county, 1966 and 1967, the, the school years that started in the fall of those years. Um, and uh, it did indeed succeed in a, a very token level of, of integration. We had three black students in my class. I think there were maybe a dozen in the elementary school that I attended, which would have been something like 200 students. Um, but very quickly, the courts ruled that this was not what the Supreme Court had in mind when it ruled that schools had to be integrated. They said giving students a choice in many regions of the country does not break down the barriers between the two school systems, so you have to go ahead and fully integrate. So two years later, the counties, my, my particular county filed its plan for integration. It was approved by the federal judge who happened to live in the county. 
And at that point, the middle schools and elementary schools were integrated, and one year later, the high schools were consolidated and integrated. Um, so within over a four-year period, I went to four different schools, all public schools. And we had the same phenomenon in Jones County, North Carolina, where I grew up. As soon as full integration came along in 1968, um, the first segregation academy opened, you know, which was flabbergasting to me. Here were farmers and white people who wouldn't spend a nickel on nothing, but all of a sudden overnight could find the funds to open a school. You know, I can't tell you the, the extent, the extent of cheapskatery in Jones County is, is still phenomenal. <laughs> and the notion that they could, within a three-month summer period, find housing, find teachers, and find equipment for a, a brand new school, just, it still flabbergasts me. And there were dozens of these that opened in that same time period all over eastern North Carolina. So that when full integration happened, about, I would say, between half and two-thirds of the white kids went to private schools, and the rest of us stayed in public schools, making us a minority. My, my, I think the public schools in Jones County were 70% black and 30% white for the rest of the time I was there. The cows. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism, what it is, how it works. Today's date, Wednesday, January 20th, 2016. So I have been told the audio clip at the beginning of the program. Our guest uh, from just last week, uh, admitted racist, Mr. Jim Grimsley. Uh, we discussed his book, uh, How I Shed My Skin, which is about his experience with schools being, quote unquote, desegregated uh, in eastern North Carolina. Uh, he was just, as I said, with us last week, similar subject matter to what we will be discussing today. Uh, only this time it will be in Virginia and Prince Edward County specifically. Uh, before we get into the broadcast, again, we are fundraising for 2016. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio uh, when you hit the blog the paypal button is in the top right corner uh, of the page uh, for those who are not interested in paypal feel free drop us an email and we will get you a physical mailing address i uh, hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy i uh, also want to make sure that i again remind folks the memorial uh, that will be uh, at Howard University in Washington, D.C. for Dr. Francis Cress Welsing uh, this coming weekend, uh, this Saturday. Uh, I've posted information about it on my Facebook, as have other folks. Uh, I've tweeted as well. Uh, if you get confused or need more details, you can email me about that as well, and I can forward you the, the information that I have. But uh, if folks are in attendance, definitely dial in on Saturday for the compensatory call-in uh, and give us the updates uh, about what goes down. Looking forward to uh, hearing folks give their tributes and uh, fond farewell uh, for the phenomenal work and energy invested by Dr. Welsing. That said, uh, broadcast today, uh, very close to me personally. I've said uh, repeatedly, even though I'm in Washington State now, that 
I was born in Virginia, a uh, graduate of University of Virginia. Uh, so I, really, I would encourage anyone, if you're listening uh, to this program and, and we talk about racism all the time, you should really make time to research and study your particular area. Uh, I know we have a lot of listeners who are outside the United States, wherever you happen to be at on the planet, you should have like a plus knowledge about your particular area and the history of racism in that area. Uh, so that would mean like for me, for Virginia, that means that I should know a lot about uh, Matt Turner, John Brown, uh, Senator Harry Byrd, Southern Manifesto, Massive Resistance, Prince Edward County, minimum, Doug Wilder, minimum. These are things that you should know quite a bit of information about. And I would submit that this is a great way that you can teach your children about racism. That's something that we talk about all the time. You can make it very concrete uh, because you can drive to these spots. You can see some of these people. They have national markers and tours and museums uh, for a lot of this stuff. You can get them a lot of information and you can, I would suspect, have some really intimate moments bonding with your children uh, around teaching them about the history of your state or the history of your city, county, whatever the case may be, and helping them to get a better understanding of the problem of racism. So definitely you should take advantage. And anybody that's listening into this program, if you live in Virginia or have spent time in Virginia, might born in Virginia, man, you should really perk up, uh, should be really important information. I would also remind folks that the black journalism Great information from Hannah Nicole Jones uh, that she put out about a year and a half ago. I think it was like the middle of 2014 about how schools are just as, quote unquote, segregated, uh, if not worse than they were 50 years ago. Right now, 21st century, I think that is extremely important because frequently people like to talk uh, about progress. I think that word gets used a lot. And I've told people I despise that, but they use that term a lot. And the way that we talk about racism is though it's getting better uh, depends on which metrics you look at. I know that specifically is one. If you're looking at education, it does not look like progress at all. It looks about exactly the way it did 50 years ago, which I think says a lot about what racism is how it works, and the permanence of this problem. Broadcast today, I started with the chip, uh, clip from Jim Grimsley. Uh, he was uh, at a Southern Literary Festival, which was broadcast on C-SPAN. You can check it out online. And one of the co-panelists with Mr. Grimsley uh, was our guest for today's program. Uh, she also uh, wrote a book, was published in 2015, about uh, quote unquote, school desegregation. Uh, as I said, her book deals with Virginia uh, and specifically Prince Edward County. Notorious. We've done programs uh, on this before where they closed public schools for five years. They being white people closed public schools for a half decade uh, as opposed to having black children attend school with white children. Uh, devastating consequences for the black children uh, of that era and consequences that can still be seen today uh, in many different ways. Uh, she wrote a book about this experience detailing her own family's involvement uh, in the closing of these schools and her efforts to research and learn more about what happened in her hometown in Virginia. Uh, really Glad to have her on the program to get more information. The book is titled Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, a family, a Virginia town, a civil rights battle. And the author joining us live, Mrs. Kristen Green. Uh, see if I can nab the correct line here. Uh, Miss Green, are you with us? 
I am. Thanks for having me. Outstanding. Glad to have you on the program. Uh, for our listeners, this might be their first time hearing about you and the work that you've done. Uh, anything that you think listeners should know about you before we get started? Well, I grew up in Prince Edward County um, and spent most of my life there before I went off to college. Um, so I was really writing about you know a place that I knew intimately, um, yet I knew so little of the history um, of what had had happened there before I was born. So this this story was really about um, a journey to uncover what had happened there and um, to share it widely because I think it's really important. I think it is important as well. Uh, and just uh, disclosure, you are a journalist by trade, is that correct? I am. I've been a journalist for 20 years um, and had been living on the West Coast. Um, I had moved from Virginia to work on the West Coast when I became interested in, in learning more about what had happened um, in Prince Edward. Right on, right on. Uh, it should be obvious, but just making sure uh, for listeners who haven't seen you before, you are a white woman, is that correct? I am. Mm-hmm. Right on. I sure am. Uh, this program, very important uh, words, definitions. Uh, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy. I use them as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Hmm. Uh, Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that is an accurate definition? Um, gosh, I mean, I don't know. I haven't like sat down to think about exactly how it's defined. So I feel a little put on the spot by that, but, um, I don't, uh, there's nothing particularly off putting to me about the definition that you're using for you. So, um, we can move forward, you know, using that on the show. Um, I don't, I'd have to think about, you know, how. If that if that would be the definition I would use. Okay, uh, I just as you just said, definition is very important, and and having a clear definition for it, in my view, is very important because I found that a lot of times in racism, uh, people don't give clear definitions, or they assume that everybody has the same definition for racism, and that is not the case. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, it would be great if you could comment if you think that's accurate or not. At minimum, do you have a definition for racism? Since you wrote this book, which in my view is clearly about racism, do you have a definition for what racism means? I mean, I guess that my definition was softer. You know, um, I mean, the way I thought of it, working on the on the book was um, was an act. You know, I, I thought about the closing of the schools as a racist act, which. Um, the way I looked at it, it was it was a decision to shut you know a population of children out of school as a way to avoid um, avoid desegregating the schools and um, and I viewed it as racist because the people who who made the decision didn't want their children to go to school with black children and they thought that that black children weren't as smart. Um, and were were further behind in school and um, were not their equals. Um, and so I guess they, in my viewpoint, they considered themselves 
better than blacks and and didn't think blacks were worthy of the same things that their children were. And so um, I guess that's how, you know, I viewed that as a racist action. I think, you know, determining um, the extent of some people's racism and like what that looked like for them, um, that was sort of a difficulty I encountered working on the book because many of these people were gone and, and, you know, it was difficult for me to, um, I mean, I couldn't talk to them about their motives or, or why they, they chose to go down this road. So, um, okay. I still have a people, a system of people who classified themselves as white. That's accurate. Okay. Dedicated to abusing or subjugating everyone in the known universe. I, I don't know if that's accurate. We're not talking about known universe. Um, and who they classify as not, not white. I think that that would be that part is accurate too. So, um, known universe but, seems to be the only part that you're, you're <laughs> not willing to cosign on. Um, I don't know that they were dedicated to abusing or subjugating everyone. I mean, I think um, I think that's the effect of their action. I don't know that they would. You know that they would consider themselves dedicated to that. Um, mm. So that's I have I have a little difficulty with that. Okay. That definition too, but I don't know. I mean, it's something to think about. You know, to, to, I mean, I, you're right. There should be more of a, a a definition, and that that might have been part of the trouble with for me. You know, trying to to look at what happened because. Um, Obviously, many of those people were gone and couldn't talk about their decisions. But, you know, they didn't think of themselves, uh, they didn't think of what they did as being racist. So that doesn't mean that it wasn't. But um, <laughs> that, made, that made the reporting about those actions kind of uh, difficult and, and touchy. So Okay. I believe Governor Almond uh, in Virginia at the time, I believe he publicly stated that he would cut off his arm before he allowed one black child to attend a school with white children. That, to me, sounds like the quintessential example of dedication to racism, white supremacy, even if he wouldn't self-identify as a racist. And I think there are a lot of statements that people made like that uh, during this whole tenure leading up to and five years with the closure and after, but we'll get into the details. Agreed. Agreed. And there, there certainly were people that were sort of the main leaders of this who came out and said, said stuff like that. Um, but there were also many people who, who supported, you know, the decision to close the schools or, you know, or failed to speak against it. And I don't know that their motives were exactly the same. Hmm. I just don't know. I mean, there's no way to know for sure. So I hate to, um, you know, I view the the action of closing the schools certainly as a, um, you know, as an act of abuse and, and subjugation. But I don't know that I, I just have trouble like classifying, you know, everyone in that community in that way. I don't know. Hmm. Um, okay. We as I said, think about. We will think about it as we process your book uh, through the broadcast. Okay. Uh, before we get into the details of your book, one of the questions that I've been trying to ask is all the white people that come on the program. Uh, there's a non-white author. He wrote a piece in The Atlantic uh, at the end of 2014. He was talking about racism, and it's a specific sentence. Uh, the sentence reads, uh, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. 
Uh, and it's the first portion of the sentence uh, that, you know, I want to ask you about. So the first portion, do you think that this is true? You're a white woman, the white people that you've been around, particularly in Prince Edward County, but just white people on the whole that you've been around. Do you think that a sizable portion of them are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? Do you think that's accurate? Um. If they take the, a moment to think about it, sure, sure. If they take, if, you know, if they're if they're if they're discussing something like this, like my book, if they're reading my book or somebody's asking them, yeah, I think like if you put them on the spot and ask them about racism, I do think that they are pained. I don't know if it's like a you know part of their everyday life, but um, that was an important qualifier for me because if uh, the sten- the st- the sentence reads, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained to me that does not translate to if you catch somebody on the spot or if you bring this up uh like it would be a regular thing for them to be greatly and sincerely pained i mean i think like my generation is and people that i like associate with but you know part of the difficulty for me working on this book is going back to a place where people aren't exposed to as much and and don't you know don't take it as person don't take what happened there as personally as i do and art is pained, you know, so that's something I've, I've struggled with, um, you know, in this process. So, um, how are the younger, that, how are the younger white people that you're around? How do they demonstrate their sincere and great pain about racism? Um, like people like, you know, my peers, is that what you mean? Like people that I would consider friends or, or, you know, um, like-minded folks. Is that what you mean? You said people that are like your generation that you think for them, you think that this statement is true, at least for a sizable number of them, that this statement is true. So, I mean, I can't judge what their everyday life looks like, but when we're, when we are discussing it, um, I, I think people of my generation, like, you know, my peers, people that I'm, you know, talking with about this kind of stuff, um, do take it really personally and, and want to do more to to make race relations better and personally want to like feel like they have a stake in it and um but i don't i don't know necessarily how they how they demonstrate it in their own lives okay out of the white people that we've been asking uh it was the majority of white people had said that they think that statement is false uh that based on the white people that they've been around that they do not see any evidence that most of the white people that they're around or even a sizable number of them are sincerely and greatly pained uh by racism i too think the statement is false but i think we've had a string of three straight white guests who said that they think that that is true um and i think i think i've told all of them i don't i don't believe that they're being truthful uh in that we wouldn't have all of these problems if that were the case but listeners can i think they're pained when put on the spot but i don't think it's it's like part of their everyday life. No, that's so. that's not what the statements. That's why I keep going back. The statement didn't say that. The statement said that they are often. So this is not a put on the spot thing. Like this would be a regular part of how they feel and the way that they use their time and energy to do something about this problem that they are sincerely and greatly pained about. And I just don't see that manifested. But you know, mm. folks can. Well, it depends that. how you interpret the statement. Like, I mean, if I'm thinking about, I think if people are they're thinking about racism. You know, when it's like, and it's in the news, you know, there are a lot of issues that are in the news that would make you think about that. So I think when they are thinking about it, they are greatly pained. But I don't know, you know, what what percentage of time it, um, you know, it fills their their minds. I can't speak, it's just hard to speak for a whole um, whole race. (laughs) No worries, no worries. 
Moving forward to your book, uh, Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, um, just to make sure that folks that are listening, if this is the first time, again, we've talked about this before. If you go back in the archives, we've talked about done whole programs just on this incident, but uh, I'll give a quick overview. You can let folks know if, if what I'm saying is accurate. Uh, 1950s, uh, Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision comes up in 1954, Prince Edward County is a part of that decision. Uh, you had black students uh, in Farmville who staged a walkout. Uh, they were at a black high school that was woefully underfunded. Uh, they had these tar paper shacks basically that were just added on to the school to accommodate grossly overcrowded and terrible supplies, terrible buses, uh, no heating, just the worst of the worst uh, conditions. Didn't have enough books, books with no pages, just horrible. Uh, and so the students uh, staged this walkout uh, to protest the schools. They go on strike to get uh, better schools. They are not initially, they are not asking, we want to go to the white school. They just want their school to be funded correctly so that they can have better facilities. Uh, NAACP gets involved. They get added to the Brown v. Board of Education decision uh, and it's you know hey we're going to go for a quote-unquote integration we want to be able to go to school with the white children have access to the same facilities separate but equal is never going to work out white people are not going to do right funding wise uh, so they have the decision in 1954 uh, white people uh, throughout the south this is not just a prince edward county thing white people throughout the south uh, are furious about this uh, in Virginia, Senator, uh, former governor and uh, U.S. Senator uh, Harry Byrd becomes kind of the leader of the Southern Manifesto movement, this massive resistance. We're not going to do this. We're not going to comply. The federal government is not going to come in and tell us uh, that we have to send our children to school with black children uh, in Prince Edward County. They begin fundraising years in advance of closing the schools. They begin fundraising and getting support, galvanizing around this idea of we just won't have public schools. They can't make us. Uh, fund and carry out public schools so that will kill it and we'll just open up private schools for white children. They begin fundraising so they'll have the money to do this to open these private white academies. Uh, finally in 1959 uh, they decide that they're going to go ahead and close the schools down in Prince Edward County. Uh, they do so until 1964. Uh, they open up private white academies for the white children. Uh, eventually they build a whole uh, different building, different structure so they can have uh, white upper uh, like high school students in the new structure that they build. The black students, they do not get private academies for black children. Uh, they either end up having to go out of state to get education. Some of them don't get any education at all for this period. Uh, and this is not resolved until uh, court orders them that they have to open up the schools uh, in 1964. Uh, is that kind of a, a rough, quick synopsis of, of what happened in this period? It sure is. Yeah, good job. Right on, right on. Uh, and would it be accurate to describe this? Because I look at this entire act, this on this program consistently, I insist individuals should think of racism, white supremacy as war. This is not a racial divide. This is totally white people that are dedicated to practicing racism. They are practicing war against black people. I view this as an act of war, an act of terrorism uh, against black people, shutting these schools down for five years and just whatever. Oh, and just to add in that they, they do make measures to make sure that the white teachers are going to be compensated. That's one of the things that they do very early on to make sure that white teachers are going to be compensated so that they don't leave and go find jobs elsewhere. They do not do this for black teachers. But it would be would it be accurate to classify this as an act of war, an act of terrorism? I don't know. I mean, I consider it, I characterize it as just an evil action. That's how I think of it. Okay. 
listeners can ponder on that as well. What was your purpose uh, in writing this book, and did you have a specific target audience in mind? Well, my purpose was that I grew up in this community and wasn't taught what happened there, and I attended the White Academy, as did my parents, and I didn't know the real reason that it was founded. Um, You know, and... I became a journalist, and here I am, you know, across the country, living in Oregon and then in California, reporting on, you know, other stories every day, telling stories about other people and other communities every day. And I'm, you know, I'm spending all my time doing that and extremely curious about all these other places. And I don't know really the most interesting story um, to, to my family, to my community. I, don't, I can't even describe what happened there. Um, and so I think it was like developing an interest and curiosity and learning the story that, that I was never taught and that my classmates were never taught. And then a lot of people in my hometown, um, don't, you know, didn't know, um, don't know, you know, to this day. Um, and I, I just decided, I guess at some point that I should try to write a book about that and do kind of do more of a mainstream book because some academic texts had been done about it, but it's, it covers such a, you know, a, a long period of history that, um, I think the academic text had, had tended to focus more on specific parts of the history and not the full history. And so I really wanted to, um, to tell the full history and, and be able to do a lot of, um, firsthand reporting from students who were shut out of school. But I also knew that I would have access or, or hoped that I would have access to the you know, white academy officials who had been, you know, the principal when I was in school and, and teachers um, from when I was in school um, so that I could try to explain why that school was started and, and sort of what that looked like, um, the idea behind it and what my experiences had been there. Um, and I also wanted to be able to get to current day Prince Edward County and explain some of the impacts of of a decision like this, a decision, you know, to shut half of your community out of an education. What is, what does that mean today? What, you know, what, what are the repercussions of, of, you know, making that decision? So, you know, that was my, that was my original thinking. And I thought, well, I've been a reporter for a while. I've worked at some, I worked at big city papers. I worked for the San Diego Union Tribune and I worked as a correspondent at the Boston Globe, um, when when we were living in Boston, and I thought, you know, I think I could be somebody who could could write a book that could have a um, you know a wide audience, and so I wanted to to be able to reach as many people as I could, you know, and I thought it'd be great to be able to have a book that could could be used in college courses and you know high school or middle school too, so that was kind of. <laughs> It was, it was the thinking was to to share the story as widely as possible in a way that hadn't been done before. So that was that was kind of what I was thinking from the outset. Okay, uh, you mentioned Boston. I almost uh, just because I think people uh, it's people inaccurately label this as a southern phenomenon when 
Boston has a really ugly history with this exact same thing. Uh, one of the photos that I share all the time of Ted Landsmark uh, being speared with the American flag, that happened in Boston, not Selma, not Alabama, not Mississippi, uh, in Boston in the 1970s. And they even have news clips of white people in Boston in the 70s, no less, uh, coming out and saying that I'm not sending my children, my white children to school uh, with black people. And if you try to make us do it, we're just going to private schools and forget right. the public schools. You can let the niggers have it, like saying this public on TV, no shame in the 70s. So people should not think of this as uniquely Southern. Uh, this is just racism, white supremacy manifest. Um, also, it, other great books, because I read uh, Bob Smith, They Closed Their School. That's one of the books that you also yeah. read at the end. Great book. I would definitely encourage people, uh, if you want to get more information, this might be a good book to start with, They Closed Their Schools, because this was published in the 60s. Uh, he does use the term Negro, which was you know pretty common then, but I think it gives a lot of just accurate information. He talked to a lot of people at the time and got a lot of great quotes uh, from the local paper at the time and what have you. It'll give you a lot of background information on what happened. Uh, going hey, to he was a journalist who was covering that period and it was written right you know as the it was published right as the schools reopened and and he worked um for the virginia pilot during that era um and so he really was doing you know on the ground reporting and to to put together a book um at the same time is quite a feat i mean there really isn't other work comparable to to what he did um so his you know his book sat on my um nightstand for years because um so full of like great, great nuggets about um, exactly what was happening then and, and really great explanations and firsthand work. I mean, he was on the ground doing this reporting at that time. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's critical reading for anybody who's really trying to go deep on Prince Edward County. Absolutely. I can give one of the nuggets that we got from talking about this before. Uh, it was, I was told by a white person that this book uh, that, Bob Smith thought it was selling really well uh, in the stores because it seemed like people were buying a lot of copies. So he was excited, like, oh, wow, people want to, you know, learn about this information. That's great. I've done my contribution. And then they found out later that it seemed that there were a sizable portion of white people who were buying the book and burning it so that people couldn't read uh, about <laughs> what happened. And not that I was surprised, but I do think that that is important as well because uh, people have told me that they've tried to get this book and they've had difficulties finding a copy and that sort of thing. It is older, but. That is important. Well, I had trouble finding it when I was um, starting my research, and I had to, you know, look on a lot of different online stores to try to find it. But I, I believe that it has been reprinted. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I think Moton Museum um, in Farmville may have played a role in that, but it has been reprinted, so it is widely available now. So that's a good thing. I got a reprint. I'm, I'm glad of that, too. But I do think that that is that is important and just further evidence of, in my view, dedication to racism, white supremacy. Um, switching to you. I hadn't heard that story. So that's really interesting. I mean, I've heard about that happening with newspapers before, but I, I didn't realize that, that um, I hadn't heard that story that the people were buying the book and burning it. So that's that's awesome. What a great thing to share. Thank you. For sure. Uh, skipping to your book, uh, you start out very early in the book. Uh, talking about uh, this black female who worked uh, like for generations of your family, Elsie, uh, you write, uh, my mom liked to say that Elsie was part of our family. My parents treated her better than other families who expected their housekeepers to eat separately. My mom bought Elsie birthday and Christmas presents, sent her home with vegetables from our garden, and most important, treated her with kindness and respect. My grandmother prepared her lunch instead of the other way around. Yet I didn't realize Elsie's own family had been ripped apart 
two decades earlier when she was working for my grandparents and that my grandfather was partly to blame. Uh, why did you so early in the book uh, include Elsie as a part of this narrative? Well, as a child, I really didn't know any uh, black people growing up other than Elsie and um, and like maybe our mailman. You know, I really personally, she was she was really the only black person that I knew, and I and she was the first hint that I got that. Um, that something had happened with with the schools in in Prince Edward County. I know it sounds strange. I mean, you would think I would know like some some of this history, but I really didn't know any of it. And I knew something about her daughter, like having been sent away, and I didn't know why. Um, and so for me, like she was, you know, she had to be be part of the book. Um, and and. and Part of that was like I was saying, trying to go back and learn the story of what had happened in my town, and it was like learning the story of what happened to Elsie and what had happened to her daughter, um, and and what my grandparents had said or not said, and you know how that how their relationship had been strained, the relationship between Elsie and my grandparents um, when you know in the walk up to the school closures and and for the period of time when the schools were closed because she worked for them prior to the school closings and then continued to work for them until you know, right until my grandmother died um and well past my grandfather's death and so she was a you know a constant presence in their lives and also in mine um and you know was you know really like my only exposure to not just to black people, but to people of color as, as a child, really. So she was, she was really critical to, um, to, to me coming back and, and trying to understand, you know, what had happened to Prince Edward County and how it had affected individuals, particularly those close to me. Hmm. Wow. You, uh, later on in the book, you talk about how, uh, Elsie, she ended up having to send her, daughter away she ends up being in massachusetts uh to go to school uh during this period and, and doesn't even want to come back to farmville uh, because she's able to go and get all the great resources and continue her education she's like forget you know going back to deal with all this uh nonsense and how devastated uh elsie was about this losing her child she loved children and and to lose her own child um and even some of the the remarks that your grandparents make to her during this period uh, but I was struck before I even got to all that. I was I was struck in reading this. It reminded me so much of uh, the help uh, Catherine Stockett's book uh, book or the film either either way. But it reminded me so much of the help. Uh, and even uh, when you explicitly stated that Elsie was treated better, she was treated with kindness and your grandmother cooked for her and as, as opposed to the other way around. And they got her Christmas gifts. It I feel like I have heard that rhetoric from white people a lot in talking about kindly slave masters, kindly white people uh, who did right by black people and, and weren't like the other bad, evil whites. Uh, it just sounded very, like I said, it reminded me of the help. It, it sounded very uh, rhetorical to me where I was just like, oh man, this is going to be another one of those type of books where white people write and make, write and make a lot of excuses uh, and minimize uh, acts of white supremacy and terrorism against black people. Have you had that response from other people when they've read this book and, and your treatment of Elsie? Well, I think if you, you know, read, read the whole book, you'll see that, that I hold my grandparents accountable for, for what they did. So that was my, you know, initial, um, walking into it as a, you know, as a 
how I viewed, you know, the relationship as without without the baggage of the the school closures, how I, you know, how I viewed it as someone who grew up in this setting. But I think if you read read all the way through, then you um, can follow, you know, kind of how how I respond to the the information that I that I get about um, what you know what the complexities of their relationship and and you know my grandparents' really failure to to help her or even you know inquire um, about her daughter's welfare. Okay, I did read the book uh, cover to cover uh, and. I, I will read some of those passages later, but it, it did not really uh, I, I did not really lose that initial perception of portions of this remind me very much of the help. And like I said, the typical rhetoric that I hear from a lot of white people about kindly uh, white enslavers uh, and kindly white racists uh, who were a little bit better in their treatment of niggers than the other white people. Uh, but I did read it cover to cover. Um, you talk about how you attended her church. Uh, later on, I guess this is after you had moved back to Farmville and you went to, to hear her sing and you were unsure, just kind of looking if she was nervous or apprehensive about you being there. What Can you kind of give us some of the detail of that moment? You know, I think, um, well, I, I went to her church in part because it was um, Reverend Griffin's church who um, who was kind of at the heart of this this movement um, to to desegregate, well, initially to get better schools in Prince Edward, but then um, to desegregate the schools in Prince Edward. Um, and so that was, you know, this is the historic black church that was kind of at the heart of this um, movement in Prince Edward. But I also wanted to, um, I had always wanted to hear Elsie sing in her church. Um, so it was kind of a combination of those things. And um, I, think, I think for me, Going there was perhaps the first time that I had really ever been in um, in like a, the black community's kind of space in Prince Edward. I mean, I had done that as a reporter, working in other places, like you know, coloring, covering um, communities of color, where um, that was a pretty regular experience to go to you know, for example, to a black funeral or um, maybe to cover like a Asian business owners meeting somewhere in San Diego. These are some of the things that are just popping to mind of, of circumstances where um, where I was, you know, covering things where I, where being white was unusual, you know, I was the, where I was the minority. Um, but I, I guess this was really the first time that I had been in that situation um, in in Prince Edward in my hometown. Um, and so I think I, you know, I did, I did feel uncomfortable, um, or I just noticed how I was feeling, I guess. I noticed that I was feeling uncomfortable, and I noticed that Elsie didn't seem comfortable with me being there either. Um, so it was just trying to, kind of being aware of what was, what was hap- what I was feeling, and, and, you know, getting a sense from her, her that she wasn't totally comfortable with me being there either. I don't know exactly why that was, but I, you know, perhaps it was because our interactions had really been, you know, had been limited to interactions in my, mostly in my parents' home prior to that. Um, I don't know. I can't say for sure. Mm. That to me, um, that discomfort, 
uh, that you noted that might have been on both people's parts where maybe she wasn't too comfortable with you being in that space either, maybe, um, where you start off the book saying that it was like she was a part of your family and she was there and she you know, worked for your grandparents and then worked for your parents and you've been around her, seems like, your whole life. Um, that she's not part of the family. Like, I feel like that's, that's one of the lies when this gets said on a constant basis. I mean, white people say this about uh, enslaved black people, that they were part of the family. Uh, and then it just continued on and on and on when it's no longer that particular type of slavery racism where it's just a different form. And they said the same thing, that, you know, this is not the help. She was part of our family. When that, I mean, is a total lie. There was a clear power dynamic uh, in place here. And I think you even state in the book that black people, they are supposed to know their place in relation mm-hmm. to white people. Uh, and I think, well, I do say that hang, that's hang something second. My, that hang, my mother, hang, I know, right. hang on, hang on a second. Just with okay. the church, with the church dynamics specifically, uh, I think that there's a pattern and folks can remember, we talked about this with the half has never been told with Edward Baptist, uh, where they have this long passage about how for white people, when, enslaved black people were having a dance or any sort of free time on the plantation and they could do their music and sing and that sort of thing, that this was a space that white people weren't allowed in. And I said that that is nonsense. I mean, I can sell all of you like right now. So if I want to come hang out uh, in the slave quarters while you all are dancing and doing whatever you're doing, I can do that. And I think white people have a long history of having done that. This portion, it also reminded me of Dylan Storm Roof when he carried out his terrorist rampage in Charleston, South Carolina. In the aftermath, there were a lot of white people flocking to the AME Emanuel Church in South Carolina. And apparently this has continued. The New York Times, they did a big write-up months after this where it's almost like this is a tourist attraction where you have white people coming from all over uh, to come down and take pictures and be at the church and say whatever they're going to say, whatever this is supposed to accomplish. But to me, it just it seems like another form of white people encroaching on black people's space uh, where I can come, I can be in your space, I can be in your element uh, and, and be around for whatever reason, whether this is supposed to be I'm deriving comfort from this, whether this is me under the guise of being against racism for whatever reason, but I can come and be in your element, a place, even the black church. I think for a lot of people, that's long been a, a space where black people have tried to get some strength, some resilience for all of the horrors of racism that we've dealt with. And even in that, we can come be in your, in fact, I would, I can stop here in the book. You even talk about how Longwood college encroached on a lot of black property and space. One of them, I think, think was a church, a place of worship for black people and took that over as the college expanded. That's kind of what it felt like to me. It might've been at the root of some of her discomfort. Now, would you like to respond? Uh, I think, no, I think that makes good sense. Context of white supremacy, Kristen Green. Uh, one of the other folks that you start off very early uh, in the book, uh, where to me it seems like there shouldn't be any any room for quabble here, Robert Taylor definitely seems like someone who was dedicated to racism, white supremacy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you start off with him, and when he's talking to you, you get a sense. You can, I guess, you can give listeners some background. But as you are talking to him, you're interviewing him about this story. It seems like he's getting a sense from you, like, wait a minute. Whose side are you on in this? What what is wrong with you? You've changed. You've hung out with some northern people. What what type of questions? What are you trying to say here as a white woman? Can you give us a little bit more information about who Robert Taylor is and why he was talking to you in this manner? Sure. Um, so I grew up down the street, about a block from um, Robert Taylor, who was involved heavily involved with starting the White Academy. Um, 
from from the beginning and um you know remained on its board and you know it was the head of the board for a long time um it was super involved until he died and then when i interviewed him it was about um 6 weeks before he died i didn't i knew he was ill i didn't you know how it is sometimes you don't you don't know that it's quite it's going to be quite that soon but um the, it did turn out to be you know the very end of his life when i was interviewing him and it was really early in my research so i you know i had just been reading um you know they closed their schools and um you know a few other texts like just starting to kind of um, put together some of the pieces about what had happened but i didn't have the bigger context of what was happening around the south during this this time i didn't you know fully understand um the community's role in the brown decision um you know, so I just, I was really at the beginning of my research, and, but I really wanted to talk to him. Um, you know, he was really the last living founder of the Academy, and I really wanted to, to talk to him um, before he died. And so, and he's someone who, who had known me since I was a child. Um, so I went, you know, to his home and d- approached it with the, you know, with openness, I really, I felt like I could do this interview just the way I would do any interview as a journalist. Um, but I didn't, I didn't think about, you know, this was probably, <laughs> this really opened my eyes to what kind of project this would be. Um, because it, it's different when you know the person. And I mean, he sensed, you know, pretty early in the interview that, that I didn't agree with what had happened you know, now, now remember, this is really early in my research, and I hadn't discovered the extent of my grandfather's role in school closures, and I really didn't understand at that point exactly what whites in the community had done, exactly how long they had threatened to close the schools, and how long they had had to, to change their mind to do something, you know, different. Um, so, you know, I mean, if, if I, it had been like you know, when I was closer to the, you know, finishing the book, it would have been an even harsher interview. But this was really like me just kind of tiptoeing into the, into the narrative, you know. And I, and I, I, I said, you know, some of the questions I asked him, he just, he, he stopped in his tracks and he's like, oh, living, living in the north, you know, living up there. And at that time, I was living in Boston. Um, has changed you. Um, you know, he knew I had lived in California too. Uh, he also knew that I had married, um, you know, someone who is not white. Uh, my husband is a multiracial man, and so he he knew, you know, this stuff about me. But he was he was pushing back against my questions, and and I was trying to maintain this civility that I had, you know, grown up being told was the right way to act, um, and I was kind of eating up his his responses, um, you know, as outlandish as they seemed to me, as dated as, as his beliefs seemed, I was, the, the journalist to me was really, really enjoying like these details because I thought, oh my gosh, this just shows that, that, you know, men like him, like they don't change and, and he's going to go to his grave believing that, that, um, integration is wrong and like still fighting for the same causes. On the other hand, um, he made it really personal, and he talked about how, um, you know, when black young men uh, dated, you know, white young women um, or teenagers, 
um, they impregnated them and created these babies that nobody wanted. And it, I knew he was talking about me. He, I mean, he wasn't just talking about young black men getting, you know, young white women pregnant. He was talking about me and the babies that my husband and I wanted to have. Um, and so, you know, everything in me wanted to, you know, cuss him out and get up and storm out of that room, you know, and and leave this project very far behind because this was going to bring nothing but pain, you know, having these kind of conversations, confronting this past that was still very much the present was going to bring nothing but pain to me and to my family um, and to, you know, and to many people in the community. Um, yeah, so that's what happened. <laughs> mm. Smoothie uh, apparently is causing problems down in Virginia as well. Um, that thread of Mr. Taylor's concerns in terms of at least that was one of the excuses that he gave as to why these academies were needed and we couldn't have black children in school with white children. Uh, they're going to get white girls pregnant. Uh, that was repeated, you know, every day, every hour uh, during this period as a reason as to why this could not happen. Uh, but the thing that I find that is interesting is that in the book, as you continue to writing, so this is years, decades after all this has passed, uh, that there are rumors about rapes in the bathroom at mm -hmm. Richmond public schools, even though these rumors are not substantiated, but it's still floated out there like, oh, man can't go to Richmond public schools. I mean, gosh, anything could happen to you. Uh, oh, that was pr the Prince Edward public schools. Yeah. My Prince mom was hearing that, that right. rumor, the Thank you. Prince Edward public schools. When I was asking her about why she didn't, um, why she didn't send us, us to the public schools, why she chose to send us to the Academy when it represented, um, segregation to the country. Right. Prince Edward schools. Thank you. And then right. last week where you have the governor in Maine, I think, well, within the last 10 days this year, the yes. governor in Maine who says, hey, Smoothie and them, they're coming up here and selling their heroin and impregnating uh, these white girls and leaving them here. Uh, what is it, this refrain that white women are going to be impregnated by some non-white person? Why is this such a, a consistent uh, fear uh, that whites have to keep expounding and talking about this threat of, of non-white people? I don't, I don't know why are white, older white men, politicians in particular, are so obsessed with Dylan that. Roof said it's it too. Question. It's not just older white men. Dylan Roof said this too reportedly at the uh, Charleston church shooting that you keep raping our women. He's uh, in his early um, 20s, so he's not an right. older white man. You're right. I don't, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it goes back to the same things that, that you know, that uh, Robert Taylor said to me. I don't know why it's persistent. I don't know why it's persistent, but I mean, certainly, um, it has. You know, yeah, it's it's still an issue. Hmm. You you referenced the Loving case uh, here as well, which is state of Virginia. Like I said, there's a lot of history. I know. Uh, we know have so about, much going on, don't we? To know about the state of Virginia. Um, what the thing that I find that is interesting about this case, and I have to uh, credit comedian W. Kamal Bell, who's been a guest on the program before. Uh, with pointing out that that loving case that a lot of people, even a lot of white people will point to that case and say, oh, this is progress. This is great. And they have documentary films where they talk about it now and all that good stuff. Uh, Mildred and Richard Loving, even though eventually when the case, you know, got the Supreme Court and all that stuff, uh, by the time that they started having problems, she was 18. Uh, he was 24. 
But when they met, when this courtship or whatever people want to call it, when this started, she was 11 and he was 17. And Mr. Kamau Bell, he said, I cannot imagine white people celebrating anything if it involved an 11 year old white girl and a 17 year old black boy. Nobody, no white person would jump it up. And I'm like, yes, this is great romance and wonderful. Not at all. I just I find that astounding uh, for this case, even even in Washington with a six year age difference. If she had been 17 and he was 23 that would be against the law here. That would be statutory rape. That, you know, could not happen at all. Like today, that would be against the law. Do you have any thoughts on, on the massive or? Yeah, I think it's a significant age difference uh, between these two. I, I hadn't realized that, but I mean, that is interesting. I'd have to look into it to, you know, to, to comment more about the impact that that had on their relationship. I mean, they certainly appeared to, to have, um, know, a loving relationship later on. I don't know what, what their childhood was like. I, my understanding was they lived down the road from each other, you know, and I don't know at what age their relationship started or anything. I mean, one other case, you talk about the Loving versus Virginia case. I mean, I don't, I don't know if your um, listeners are aware, but um, Prince Edward County was one of the five communities featured in the Brown uh, versus Board of Education decision. Um, I wasn't aware until I worked on this book that that Brown v. Board of Education is actually an umbrella case. Um, the Topeka case is is just one of five cases, and that um, what had happened what happened in in Prince Edward County with the walkout um, from the black high school to protest the conditions there, led by Barbara Johns, a high school student, um, ended up being one of the cases that um, became part of Brown. Um, I think that's really significant, and many people. Um, that have read my book told me that they weren't aware of that. Um, so that was just something I wanted to point out, too. That was really important. And it actually took a Supreme Court decision to reopen the schools in Prince Edward as well. Absolutely. Very important. I think there's a statue of Barbara Johns at the uh, now Civil Rights Museum uh, in Prince Edward County. And other people. She's not the only one. Um, oh, actually, no. It's a, it's a beautiful um, statue that includes her and, and NAACP attorney Oliver Hill. It's a civil rights statue that's on um, the Capitol grounds um, right near the governor's mansion and right across from a huge statue to um, Senator Byrd. Ah, that is hilarious. Richmond. That is yeah, hilarious. It really is. Wow. You, you, uh, in the book, you also kind of center your, you already talked about it, your marriage to, to a non-white male, Jason, uh, in the book and the marriage, going back to Farmville to have your wedding, how your family members, white family members were going to respond or townspeople, how they would respond uh, to all of this, you marrying a non-white person. Um, you, I guess, make a clear distinction that Jason, even though he is a non-white person, that he is not black and that that is significant in terms of the reaction that your white family members would have to him. Uh, why did you point that out in the book? Um, because, because I became aware that that was really important to people in, that that was, a, that was something that people in Farmville and in Virginia um, considered an important distinction. Um, and I think it's because of racism in this country has been, you know, the worst racism is is reserved for blacks. And I think because his race is unclear, um, I don't know. I think that that he, you know, doesn't experience the same kind of racism that um, 
that a black man would. And so I just thought it was important to put that on the table. I didn't want to have that be, you know, pe- I didn't want it to come across that he was black and then people would be like, well, why did you hold this information back? I think it was important to to provide that and also to acknowledge that, like, that, that what he faced, you know, the kind of um, racism that he faces is, is different than than the kind of racism that black males face in this country. Um, his his race is kind of indistinguishable, and so I think um, he gets a lot of the, you know, where are you from questions. And he also gets a lot of the, oh, I forgot, I forgot you're not white kind of attitudes from people, whether it be from my own family or people he works with. Um, and so his experience, I, I am, you know, his lived experiences as a brown man, um, but I do think that it's probably different from the experience of a, a black American man. And so I, I thought it was important to be clear about that. Hmm. I agree. I do think that is important. You you said in the book that your grandma Mimi, that she never, never warmed to him. Uh, Jason, is that correct? That is correct. And I, and I, you know, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to know what that, what that's about. I mean, I had a cousin who pointed out to me that uh, Mimi never warmed to her white boyfriend who became her husband. And, um, you know, it may have been that she just wasn't a very warm person towards the end of her life. Um, but, you know, I, as Elsie Lancaster, the housekeeper for my family that we talked about earlier, um, said to me, my, you know, she said, your grandfather would have rolled in his grave to see that you married Jason. So, mm. um, so, you know, I know that, you know, in my heart, I, I feel like part of, that's part of the reason that she, you know, never, never warmed to him. Um, you- but it's hard to say for sure. You think it would have been significantly worse if Jason were black? I don't think that the marriage would have been accepted in the same way. I think you know there. I'm, it's hard to know for sure, of course, but um, you know maybe my parents would have been okay with it, and and my brothers. But um, I, I mean, it's hard to know how they would have responded. But I have to you know hope that they would have been okay with it. But I definitely think that people in town wouldn't have, um, you know, that the people who were guests at the wedding or people that my family knew wouldn't have been as accepting of the marriage. It's just a guess. And, and partly because of the history there, because, you know, Prince Edward County um, has traditionally been a black-white county. You know, it's not a place, it hasn't until recently been a place where there are people of other races. Um, and so, and because of, you know, it's, it's, clear history in the South's history. That's just that's just how it's looked. Um, um but, you know, there, it's hard to say for sure, but that's that's just kind of how I how I feel about it when I think about it. Hmm. That it, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been as seamless is my guess. Hmm. With uh after the Charleston massacre, uh Dylan Roof's attack, uh there's all this continuing to be all this dialogue about removing the Confederate flag and taking down certain white people statues to Confederate soldiers and Ben Tillman and other white people who were unabashedly racist, white supremacist. Uh has there been any conversation in Virginia about taking down the statue to Senator Harry Byrd, former governor and US Senator Harry Byrd? No, I haven't heard that. I mean there has been discussion about, um, led by the Richmond Times Dispatch, where I worked briefly, um, about whether some of these statues to Confederates should come down. Um, and 
that's been really interesting. But there's a, um, I think she's a high school student who is leading a movement um, in, I want to say, um, either Henrico, I think it's Henrico County, it might be Hanover County, pardon me for not knowing, um, in adjacent to Richmond, who is leading um, a movement to have a school name for Harry Bird, to have the name changed. And her argument is that um, is that because the school is is a public school that is extremely diverse, it is inappropriate for the school to be named for someone who who fought to to keep um, kids of color from going to school with white kids. So that's been really interesting to watch. And um, the Richmond Times Dispatch, which has a reputation, um, you know, and I point out in the book about. They and the other um, former Richmond paper that's now shuttered, both of those newspapers supported uh, Prince Edward in in uh, in the school closures and in, in in their fight to keep from from having to desegregate the schools. Um, and Richmond Times Dispatch um, developed the nickname of Richmond Times Disgrace for the way it covered that. Um, and they have now. Um, you know, they they supported the students' um, suggestion and in an editorial, and they've had other um, editorials recently that have have shown real progress in, in the way of thinking about um, Confederate and and other leaders of um, of the segregation movement in in Virginia. So it's been really interesting to to follow, and I'll be curious to see what you know um, kind of where. Virginia ends up on this in the next, you know, decade to 20 years. It'll be really interesting to see what they decide to do with all these monuments to the lost cause. Fascinating. I would, uh, my, Senator Byrd would be another person, former governor would be another person that I would submit. It shouldn't be any quabble room there either. This guy was one of the uh, leaders in the Southern Manifesto and all of this stuff, which in my opinion is clear dedication to racism, white supremacy. Nothing should be named after him. There shouldn't be any statues either. Uh, we could be honest about what he did, Senator, blah, blah, blah. But this should not be someone that we're looking at as uh, a role model or someone that we want to emulate moving into the 21st century, uh, in my view. Um, yeah, but I mean, and I and I don't disagree with that. But I also, I just think about like, where do we even begin? You know, like at some point, we, you know, I mean, here we are. Here's where we're beginning. We're going to re. You know, it's possible that that a public school system here near me will rename a school. But it's it's really interesting to to kind of go down this path. I mean, I mean, think about people like what do we do with Thomas Jefferson? You know, what do we do? There are so many people who whose histories are, um, you know, who who have really bad baggage in terms of, like, racism and are, what are we going to do with with the monuments to them? I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to see if we can, like, you know, relegate some of these Confederate soldiers to, you know, to a Civil War museum and instead of having them on some of the main passageways of our community. I mean, I love that idea, but I'm I'm really curious. You know, um, I'm not an activist. I'm you know uh, I'm a writer, an artist, so it's not my place to to make a call on what should be done about all this. But I enjoy watching it, and I will um, I will I will love to see this conversation unfold and, and see what we what our community does. Hmm. 
You uh, go into detail. Uh, when I stated earlier the, the conduct of the white people, your grandfather included, uh, during this time period who closed these schools, advocated for it, and even the white people who just sat by and didn't do anything. Like, yeah, maybe I don't think the public schools should be closed, whatever the case may be. They sat by and allowed this to happen. All of that should be classified as an act of war, an act of terrorism against black citizens uh, in Prince Edward County. Uh, just getting into the details of some of this, because they had tuition grants uh, for some of the white people who couldn't afford uh, the fees uh, at the private academy that was established for whites. So, I mean, we're talking about tax dollars that are now going to help white people do their, do their private racist academy thing for these five years. So you're right. This is on uh, and I have the Kindle version in case, you know, people's pages aren't matching up or what have you. Uh, but it's on 342 for me. Uh, it says in, in June, weeks after the ruling, the County Board of Supervisors set aside $375,000 for schools, $180,000 of it for tuition grants for the academy. A month later, the board held a late night meeting. Elsie was working at my grandparents' house when a call came in about the special meeting. Papa was still at work and Elsie was in the basement ironing when Mimi answered the phone. I can't believe it's happening, my grandmother said into the phone, giddy. Later that night, hundreds of Academy patrons gathered at the town armory to accept grants that were being handed out in secret. A federal judge was expected to issue an injunction the next day to block distribution of the funds and to get around the ruling, the supervisors planned to immediately issue 1,250 tuition grants. Parents buzzed with excitement as they waited for the checks to be cut at 2 a.m. You would have thought an atomic bomb went off, Robert Taylor recalled. That morning, the town's three banks opened early for parents to cash the checks before a new court order could stop them, Taylor said. Women wearing dresses and men in suits with hats or short-sleeved shirts short-sleeved dress shirts lined up outside People's National Bank on Main Street waiting to deposit the public funds into their own accounts. Two years later, a federal appeals court ordered the supervisors to return the money. The county asked parents to repay the grants, but some parents refused or simply couldn't afford to do so. Still $68,000 short in 1967, the supervisors unhappily sued the parents who still owed money. Uh, just that whole scene, in my view, this, I mean, this is, in my view, this is willful criminal activity. I would even go so far as to say this might be bordering on treasonous activity. The defenders group, uh, the defenders group uh, that got started with saying that we're going to get these uh, white academies together, we're going to get the funding and everything, they took their name uh, it's reported both in they closed their schools and you touch on this in the book. It's very close uh, to the wording that's on one of these Confederate uh, statues. Uh, so it's it's kind of the same series. I would say it's even bordering on treason. Some of the conduct that is happening here in terms of this to me just sounds like outright theft of public tax dollars to support their white academies. Uh, your yeah. response? I mean, I don't think I have to categorize everything. I kind of spell it spell it out for you. I mean. I'm not going to, you know, argue your point. Is is it inaccurate? I'm not, I just want to make sure I'm not, you know, twisting. I don't know. What? I mean, I don't I don't feel like I need to um like categorize all of it. I kind of I think I think what their actions speak for themselves. Um and I spent a lot of time, you know, writing about my my family's role in in it and and my thoughts about it. Um hmm. Okay, page 334. I do just 
in my view, I do think that that's important because it's been my experience that a lot of time, uh, as you, the term you used, that not categorizing these actions to just let it speak for itself. It's been my experience that a lot of times that this sort of thing just gets minimized, washed to the wayside, uh, doesn't get called out as this is astronomically racist conduct uh, on the part of white people where they're conspiring to do these sort of things. This happens on a pretty regular basis uh, with uh, with regards to white uh, racist activities, uh, past, well, present, look, future. I consider it racist. I don't know that we have to categorize the, you know, the degree of racism for all these, you know, activities. I mean, this whole, the whole closure was racist and many of the activities around the, the beginning of the academy and, and the funding, all that was racist too. You know, I don't know, you know, I don't know that we have to, to, you know, um, determine a degree of racism for, for each of the things they did. Um, but, yeah, it's all pretty horrible and, and racist. I agree. Hmm. You said when you were going through, uh, you went to the same academy. This is obviously years after, you know, everything has ended. Yeah. Public schools have been reopened and all that stuff. But you did still uh, go to the academy. They eventually did uh, start to allow black students to attend, I think, when you were in eighth grade. Is that correct? Yeah, it was when I was um, entering the eighth grade was when um, the academy accepted black students. Um, and that was interesting because I, I spent some time interviewing the, the headmaster from the whole time that I was there. He was, he came on board from the very beginning when the school was founded in 1959. And, and I said, I, I used the terminology with him. Oh, when, when the academy was, um, was integrated and he was like, he shook his head, no ma'am, when we accepted black students. <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought that was really interesting, and I had to think for a while, like, what, you know, I had to ask him about what he meant by that, and, um, I mean, what what happened, I'm convinced, is that the only reason that the school decided to accept black students was that they saw the writing on the wall. Their 501c3 status had been pulled by the IRS um, for discrimination, and the only way to have the 501c3 status renewed was to, to change their admission policy. And they needed that 501c3 status. That school has has suffered financially, struggled financially from from its founding, essentially. You know, as soon as those um, donations from, you know, from all the segregationists around the country dried up, um, the school has struggled to stay afloat, and so they really desperately needed to be able to say that 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 you know donations to that school were tax deductible. And so I'm convinced that that that's you know that the only reason, or the primary reason, <laughs> the leading reason why um, they decided to admit black students. Um, so it was interesting, though, to have that that principal, that headmaster, you know, really clarify that for me. Um, I thought that said a lot, but he was still really hung up on, on that wording. I agree wholeheartedly in, in my, just all of that and even the funding issue where they finally uh, accept some black students to the academy to get their 501c3 status back and to make sure that they can stay afloat uh, financially. They lost out on, I think it was well over uh, a half million dollars that was left to them by some white Virginian when he died because he had a clause in his will that they could only get this. I think it was like six hundred forty six thousand dollars. They could only get this money if it remained all white, the academy. Mm -hmm. And they, yeah. went, they went to court about this to wrangle and they lost out 
uh, on the mind of dedication, even beyond the grave, dedication to racism, white supremacy. Uh, Isn't that unbelievable? But uh, but it's interesting because I remember a few people like trying to tell me that that story, and I think it was it was interesting. I was talking to a book club about the book last night, and I said, you know, working on this book, the thing that was the most surprising to me is I would learn all these like really interesting little stories, like that that one I was just telling you about the um, or that you just told your listeners about the about the will, and people would argue with me or or they would tell the story in their own words and it would sound like a totally different story. Um, and I was like, people don't know what they don't know. Um, you know, and, and I think like the the way that, that, that some people viewed it was like, we've changed. We're this like really different school now. And I cannot believe the government will not give us that money. You know, um, how noble, you know, their view was like how noble the school was and that they, you know, deserve that money. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, yeah, I know that you think that the school, like you really want to keep this school afloat and in order to do so you need money. But like you're cool like taking, (laughs) I guess money is money, but you're cool taking money from this person who like absolutely did not want the school to have it. If there were black students admitted, I just I found the whole, it just was, you know, one of many examples from working on this book where when people explained the stories to me, they just didn't, the way they viewed them just didn't make sense to me. Um, and it, it's it's been quite an experience, you know, kind of um, going home and, and hearing people's explanations for a lot of stuff that went on um, and continues to go on in the community. Um you know, having having left and had other experiences, having you know married someone of color and have having mixed race children, um, you know having worked as a journalist in minority communities, like having lived in various places around the country, um, just when I go back and hear some of these explanations, they just don't ring true. But it's hard to persuade people um, that of my that my you know of my opinions. You know, I, it's hard to. So I just have to write what my, you know, I found that I just had to write what was true for me um, based on my experiences and my reporting and, um, you know, my beliefs. Um, And I, you know, there were just people that I am not going to persuade otherwise about why. I mean, the people argued with me about why the school was founded. I'm like, but I'm writing a book on this. You You won't believe me that that our school we attended as children was founded so that that um, white children wouldn't have to go to school with black children. You just won't believe that. <laughs> you know, it was stuff like that. I just um, happened repeatedly that that just made me just shake my head. Wow. You, uh, one of those that for me, it's, it's very important in terms of words that are used to describe things where you talk about the uh, education that you got while at the academy. Um, this is, for me, it's on 346. Uh, okay. Another academy graduate recalled that after she asked to write a report on Uncle Tom's Cabin, the groundbreak, groundbreaking anti-slavery novel, she was told to pick another book because, and this is in quotes, we don't read black authors. I think about how my classmates and I deserved a more balanced version of history, a chance to reflect on our town's and the South's past. Uh, and I read that particularly uh, this, whoever this person was, this teacher and saying that, you know, this person couldn't, this student couldn't uh, do a report on uncle Tom's cabin because we don't read black authors. Uh, in my view, the balanced 
is not the correct term. It would be accurate uh, because if I'm saying that <laughs> Uncle Tom's. You're right. In hindsight, that would be, you're right. That, it would have been a better word for me to use. Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, you're certainly right. Um, that seems so, typical. That just in my that sort of thing seems uh, typical. Where it's not. This is not even subjective. Where it's just this is factually incorrect information that is being given out that happens to support a view that is sympathetic or even promoting outright explicitly racism, white supremacy. Um, that I mean, unless the person can tell me that they think Harriet Peacher Stowe, she has been disqualified as a white person because of her views and, and what she wrote in the book. I mean, unless they could explain that to me. But that uh, there was another one when. You were talking about your uh, grandparents, and this is a bit later on uh, in the book. This is on three, or I guess a few pages later. It's the beginning of chapter uh, 17, where all God's children, uh, where you write, as much as Mimi's and Papa's rejection of desegregation frustrated me, I accepted on some level they were products of their time. But when it came to my parents, I had a harder time understanding their decision to return to Farmville and send my brothers and me to the segregation academy they had attended. And I even, I stopped just with the first part of that where you were talking about your grandparents being products of their time. What, what does that mean exactly? I mean, that's something I struggled with a lot um, working on the book. I mean, that is not, you know, that is not me saying that what they did is right, you know, and it is not me accepting, you know, their their role in supporting the academy and their role in my grandfather's role in um, in kind of promoting this, this idea of closing the schools, um, which I explore, you know, in, in detail in the book. My my surprise, and it was my, it was to the surprise of my mom and her sister that that my grandfather had been a member of this group, the Defenders um, of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberties. He had been a founding member of the Farmville chapter um, and an officer in that group. Um, and, and you know, neither, none of my family was aware of that. Um, and I, I, you know, I do, do go into detail, um, you know, about, about his role. Well, I don't know much more about his role than that, but... Um, you know how I feel about that. So this is not me saying that um, you know that I accept that what he did, accept what he did, um, and what my and my grandmother's support for that. But it is saying that it was that I acknowledge that this was a commonly held view, right? And I certainly spend a bunch of time, you know, towards the end of the book, saying like. Yes, yes, it was a commonly held view. Too bad my grandfather and my grandmother like couldn't have been the people who who said this is wrong or who pushed back, you know. Too bad that there weren't other people who were educated and had, you know, traveled elsewhere and who had experiences who said, "Let's not do this." Like let's let's not be the only community in the nation that closes its schools rather than desegregate. You know, let's, let's do something. Let's figure out something different. Like it's too bad. No one took the lead. Right. Um, so it's not me excusing them, but it is realizing that there is something to this idea that that was like a, a predominant view of the time. And I'm sure like when my own grandchildren, 
look back on something I'm talking about today on the show with you or something that's in the book, they will think, like, how naive could she have been, you know, or how, you know, um, like, too bad she didn't realize this or that. You know, I think I think that's just how how things work, you know, for me to, I'm looking back saying, yeah, this was a commonly held view. It doesn't mean that I accept that um, or or give them, you know, give them much slack uh, for that. But it is something that I had to just come to terms with. That Yes, this was a commonly held view and there's nothing that I can do that will change that. And I'm still like disappointed that they weren't better, but it was a commonly held view. Um, and as far as for my parents, um, I felt like you know I, I viewed them as kind of a bridge between that generation of my grandparents, where they really were were frightened of um, you know miscegenation, and they really believed that that blacks were inferior. Um, and and my parents who who didn't feel that way, you know, and were working through some of the the stuff that that you know that they experienced as children um, from going to separate schools and and trying to develop their own beliefs. So I, I kind of view them as like the bridge between you know, my more moderate views and my grandparents' um, you know, racist views. They're somewhere. They're somewhere in between. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question. Sorry, but um. No. It was something I definitely struggled with because I didn't I did not want to I mean part of me part of what I struggled with was like my grandfather was such a shy person, right? It was hard for me to picture him really being really being a leader in this whole um defenders of state sovereignty. It just it just didn't fit like him being like the, the typical idea of a leader, you know. I mean, he wasn't quoted anywhere. He wasn't an outspoken person. And so I, it was just hard for, for me to make the, the idea of him being that person fit with this guy who was an officer and founding member of the Defenders. But I realized that like not holding him accountable um, like by, by somehow like saying what he did wasn't significant or it couldn't have been that important what he did. He was just one of many. Like that, that would be... Um, I don't know. That would that would that would make everyone in Prince Edward County blameless. Like it would make all those white people who were involved, who sent their kids to the white academy, who were on the defenders, who didn't say anything, who went to the meetings and just, you know, um, went along with with what maybe it was just a few a few leaders wanted. Like that would make everyone blameless. Um, and. And I really want. I really thought it was important that, like, that I hold him accountable, because people like him, this quiet guy who who didn't seem to fit, you know, to me, my memories of him, he doesn't seem to fit like the mold of what I, of, uh, of a defender. He, you know, to me, he wasn't his personality wasn't like Robert Taylor. I just it, it didn't seem to fit. But holding him accountable. Um, was important because it was people like him that you know that that enabled the schools to be closed, um, enabled like half the county's population to be denied an education, and enabled um, black children to be separated from their parents, um, and black children to be separated from their siblings, um, and it 
it enables a whole generation of of children to be denied their dreams and um, denied the education that they deserved. And it enabled this community to be forever impacted by a decision that he he played some role in. Um, so. Hmm. Just my response, that, that phrasing, uh, because I, that again, just like I said early on when you were talking about Elsie uh, Lancaster, the help, uh, she worked for your parents and grandparents, um, that she's a part of the family. I see that sort of phraseology. They were a product of their time consistently. Uh, and it's, it has the same effect uh, in my view where it is minimizing, somehow rationalizing racist white supremacist behavior. Uh, because I hear that applied to white enslavers that, well, they were just a product of their time. So, you know, whatever. Uh, and, I just, and I contrast that. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say when referencing Nazi Germany and the atrocities that happened there, anyone say, well, Hitler or the Nazi, that was just product of their time. I've never heard it applied in that realm. It only, in my experience, it has only been applied when white people are terrorizing black people. And it can be 18th century, 17th century, 20th century. I assume it can, it'll move forward as long as racism moves forward. Even 21st century, some of these acts, were, well, they were just a product of their time. And for me, that it would be inaccurate because there were white people at that time who thought that this was totally wrong. You write about some of them in the book. Uh, Bob Smith writes about some of these people. I think Dr. Moss at Longwood College, uh, Pastor Kennedy and some of these other white people who publicly said that this is totally incorrect. Not that these people, in fact, were not racist because some of them were, but just that they didn't think that the school should be closed. Uh, you know, not that I'm going to hang out with all the black people and what have you, but they just thought it was totally incorrect to make this move to shut down public schools for five years. So that would be one. I don't even think it's historically accurate to just say that they were a product of their times. And then two, as I said, racism, white supremacy, injustice is never a product of the time. It should always be looked at as criminal activity. I, I think that whole phrase uh, should be eliminated when talking about racism, white supremacy, say that any racist, any white person that is supporting, promoting, contributing to the practice of white supremacy was a product of their time. It is one of the lamest uh, excuses ever. I think that phrase should be totally eliminated. Um, the, uh, and even I can relate it today because I could see how this could be one of those that, hey, they were a product of their time. Is it accurate? You write later on in the book, Moton High School. This is kind of where everything started. The student walkout with Barbara Johns and the other black people that were upset about the just horrendous conditions, another act of racism, that they took this uh, formerly all-black high school and now it is a museum where it has a lot of this history about what happened and what happened at the white academies, what happened when the schools were closed, uh, that when this was being uh, converted and being listed as a, as a historic landmark, uh, that the county, city of Farmville, that they did not financially contribute to this transition? Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Standard, just... I would contrast that sort of thing because I think you said that if you were comparing like in Birmingham and Selma, other communities where other cities where they have uh, these type of civil rights monuments that the cities generally do invest 
uh, in these museums and these sites. They realize a value in them. And even some might even say this is a way of uh, some form of penance of, of acknowledging wrongdoing by contributing financially to make sure that these institutions are rolling. That did not happen uh, in Farmville. Uh, and I would contrast it uh, with what you wrote in Chapter 4 where you say uh, the days are a blur. I'm reporting a story about how black activists are disappointed that a recently preserved African burial ground near downtown Richmond is being used for dog walking and frisbee tossing instead of quiet reflection. African burial ground for dog walking and frisbee. Museum for the history of racism and school closure in Farmville. We have not one nickel to contribute. That is the type of contrast I would draw. Any, anything you want to add on that one? I mean, there, and I don't know exactly what, what the communities are doing now. I mean, Farmville, the, the town of Farmville and Prince Edward have both contributed, um, you know, in some form to, to Moton. And um, I'm not up to date on, like, what each of them is, is providing today. But certainly it's a valid argument that they, that they have not um, – that they have not wholeheartedly um, embraced the the museum more more than embracing the museum, but embraced the, the role you know the importance of their role in funding funding the museum. So that that was disappointing to me that I didn't feel that they they did enough to make the museum a reality. And this is the the Moton High School where the, the um, walkout happened that led to the Brown case. I mean, I think. Um, pivotal in American history and and the building was almost, you know, sold out from from under the community to um Longwood University where it most certainly would have been uh demolished. But interestingly, um Longwood University has, has recently um given an apology for its failure to act during this time and um you know and, and what came along with their apology uh, which I found, which I found meaningful, and a lot of um, like students who were denied an education found meaningful was that that Longwood, you know, offered to enter a partnership um, with the museum. I mean, the museum they they fundraised in order to do this really beautiful exhibit. They remodeled the museum to create um, five exhibits that tell the story of what happened in Prince Edward. Um, but I think continuing to do fundraising for operational costs was going to be really challenging for them. And this new relationship with Longwood University um, will make it much easier for them to, to find operational funds. Um, they'll have dedicated resources, and they'll be able to share, you know, cost share and things like IT and um, custodial services and catering services. Um, and I think... It'll benefit from the relationship with the university. Perhaps their next um, director will have faculty status at the college. Um, so I think that um, that was really meaningful to not just get a, an apology, but have the apology be accompanied by you know an offer to to partner. Um, and people seem to really appreciate that. Hmm. Two, we had some people that dialed in who had some quick questions they wanted to ask. Sure. Um, and I just had two other uh, quick questions I wanted to get in. I guess the first one, uh, and I guess some of this is because of your marriage. And, you know, you talk about that openly in the book, being married to a non-white male. Uh, but it seems to suggest uh, a level of, quote unquote, progress with regards to eliminating racism, that there are 
uh, greater numbers of quote unquote interracial marriages. Uh, like you cite the st uh, statistic that there are uh, 15% of the marriages now are quote unquote interracial, uh, and that you see a lot more uh, offspring that seem to be uh, products of uh, quote unquote mixed race marriages, uh, that you see a lot more of that. And that represents some form of progress. Why is that one of the significant barometers uh, for you in the book with regards to working against racism, that you have more of these quote unquote mixed race marriages? I don't know if it's a barometer of progress more. It's just a reality of how this country, the, the way this country looks is changing. Um, and that, you know, that, that, uh, non-white, white babies are already the majority that, um, non-white babies will, I mean, non-white children will soon be the majority in this country before long non-whites will be, um, will be the majority in general. And I think that, um, I just think that that's going to change the, the discussion of race in this country that, um, that whites like my, you know, my like the people in my hometown won't have the same authority and power that they once had. But I don't know that I, I view it necessarily as some huge barometer of progress. I just think it's interesting to note the way that the, the face of the country is changing. Hmm. It, uh, number one, I, I hear this. This is not just you. I hear this on a regular basis. Uh, people come on this program and, I have, in fact, heard people say, like, seriously, like, they're not joking at all. They're serious that the way we're going to end racism is to have more what they call mixed marriages. Uh, if we have more of these, then that will eliminate racism. I've heard this for years, uh, and I do hear people. I even, as a, your book, just the way that it's framed, some of the, the statistics that you cite at the end and all of that, to me, it very much suggests progress in dealing with this, that it went from Robert Taylor and we can't have the niggers in classes with white children because they'll be raping white women to now you can see mixed race couples and it's not, you know, a big deal. And I don't get yelled at that sort of thing. Sometimes people might ask me, is that your child or, you know, is that child adopted? That sort of thing. But progress is being made. And I, I just find that fascinating that that's the barometer people use, even if you're saying that that wasn't your intention. A lot of people do. That is the barometer that they go to to say that there's progress as opposed to uh, median wealth ranges for black people versus white people, because I clearly do not see any progress there or graduation rates or home ownership or lots of things, lots of other things that people could look at that I do not see people point to and say, yes, we're making progress. It'll just be consistently white people and non-white people having sex, which is not new. That's been <laughs> happening for centuries under racism. Uh, if, that, if that were the case, then Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings would have solved this thing like centuries ago. We wouldn't even be having this program. This problem would have been solved. I just, that's another form that I think is just... I don't know if that was a choice, though. So, I mean. Exactly. And I would submit a lot of those same power dynamics are in play today, but... Uh, I just I find that fascinating and something that I would encourage people to be very alert about when people talk, write, uh, speak as though white people and non-white people having sex is going to solve this problem or at least is looking like it's making progress towards solving well, this problem. Well, I think it's more that, that this, this is my – I mean it's a framework because this is – it's part memoir, you know, and that's my, mm -hmm. and my experience. I mean part of what has um, shaped my views and shaped my experience is a marriage to – multiracial man and being the mother of multiracial children it it definitely has changed um has changed my interest in in learning about um 
minority communities. It's changed how I think about, you know, I have to think consciously about how to teach my children about racism in this country and um, and talk to them about how they view their own skin color um, and how, you know, and how the world or America in particular, you know, will respond to them because of their skin color, you know, and they're learning from a really young age um, about slavery and about how um, American Indians were treated in this country. And, and um, I think for me, I just, I mean, I think it's true that, that being in these relationships as a mother and as a wife um, has, has changed my viewpoint. Um, and so I wasn't, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that, that my marriage is, means progress for the whole country, certainly. But I think, um, you know, in in the memoir sense and talking about what happened in my community, it's certainly relevant that um, it was sort of an eye-opening experience for me to to be you know put in this to be in this position as a as a wife and a mom. Um, that's I didn't you know I I don't think that I'm, I I did not intend to frame frame um, interracial marriages as, as the as the solution to racism in this country. Okay, it uh, can you see how someone might get that viewpoint when reading your book, particularly when passage like when you talk about in detail the birthday party that you threw for your daughter, rainbow themed birthday party, where it's emphasized that there are lots of different uh, children hanging out and. Your daughter, obviously, being the product of a quote-unquote interracial marriage. Uh, the statistics, as I said, that you cite at the end of the book. Do you see how someone could could get that impression? I see how you did. Yeah. Okay. That, do, you, do you think I'm the only one? Am I special? Am I unique? Or do you think that some other people could read your book and come to that conclusion? Sure. Okay. Uh, do any of the profits from the book, does that go to any sort of scholarship fund or contributions to the Moton Museum or anything like that from the sale uh, of something must be done about Prince Edward County? No, well, there are no profits as yet. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I do, I do support Moton Museum and, and my husband and I both support Moton Museum and we are, you know, we are deeply interested in, in, um, you know, finding, other creative ways to to support education um, opportunities in Prince Edward County, you know, should should the book pro- be profitable at some point? So, okay, that is something we're certainly thinking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, Thomas in New York uh, dialed in, and for the folks that were listening in online, if you had uh, any issues earlier, uh, should be resolved. I think there was a problem. Uh, should have cleared that up uh, a while ago, but if you had any problems, if you just reload, this is only for people that are listening online. If you just reload the page, it should be working fine. You can hear the program. If you were listening on the phone, then you were fine all along. Uh, For Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Kristen Green? Your line should be open. Thomas in New York, did you hit your mute button? Are you with us? Not hearing you. Uh, might be uh, in an environment where you can't speak right now. I will hit our next call and then just come back to you. Uh, Ross, did you have a question for Kristen Green? Your line should be open. Ross? Uh, yes, uh, greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, thank you. Um, hello, Mrs. Green. Greetings to you. And um, I have one question. Being that you did say that you have uh, non-white children, 
as a mother, do you ever have discussions with them about racism and how to, to protect themselves potentially from people that they might come into contact with who um, might mistreat them due to the fact that they're non-white? Yeah. Oh, thank you for your your question and your call tonight. Um, yeah, we do. We, we've been talking about it. Um, I don't know that I'm the expert. I definitely think my husband has, you know, is has his own viewpoints on you know how how they should protect themselves. But um, at this point, so far, it's more been responding to their curiosity um, about race is and it specifically how it's in terms of skin color for them they're really interested in in how all of us you know my the, my two girls and uh, my husband and I all have different color skin and how their skin is different from you know kids at school um it's more about being curious right now and they're really proud of um of the book and I've explained to them um kind of the background of of what happened about segregation and and they've been learning about um Martin Luther King um and some other basics from the civil rights movement. So it's like teaching them some of the basic history. I don't know how we haven't gotten that deeply into like how, you know, how they might protect themselves at this point. Um I don't know if that's if time for that quite yet. I mean, I definitely that's something that I'll be thinking about as as we move forward. And and I definitely I, I think um, I mean I've written a little bit about this for Racealicious, and I wrote something for NPR about how um, some people in my family and 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 others friends and acquaintances kind of um, express their viewpoints about how how um, how I talk about the kids' race, my husband's race. Um, as if it, it it isn't something that I that should be um, discussed. As if like I don't need to call them multiracial. They can I can just let them be them, you know. Um, and that we shouldn't be talking about race so much. And and that's not something that my husband and I agree with. And and frankly, I found offensive from time to time where people. Um, I guess that these comments make me me feel that that. They think that they know what my husband's lived experience is and what my kids' lived experience is, and they just don't. Um, but I want to leave a lot of space for, for the kids to kind of figure out um, how they identify. So um, I don't want to you know put too much on them. I, I want to give them information and then give them space to to figure out um, how much race will, will be part of their identity. And um, what is your husband's uh, racial makeup? He is part American Indian. And is that like um, Native American and white or Native American, yes. just Native? Oh, okay, okay, I just wanted, uh, just wanted to know. Yeah. And um, my final question is, being that your children are now learning about segregation and about racism through both of you as, his, as their parents, um, you as a white female and being their mom, do you feel that these sorts of discussions will bring any sort of ambiguity as far as how they might view white people due to the information that they'll be learning and the fact that you as their mother, of course, is a white woman, but they're learning such negative things about what white people have done to non-white people? And thank you so much for taking my questions. Do I feel like it will bring ambiguity to... 
Yes, like a, a, just an ambiguity in terms of how they feel, being that you are their mother, and of course they're going to have that maternal bond with you as the, you being their mother, but yet they're learning such negative things about what the atrocities that white people have committed against non-white people. Um, I was saying, do you think that might bring some ambiguity in terms of how they feel about maybe other white people being that they, they have you for a mother or even towards you in a way because you're white as well? Do you feel like that that um, teach them learning these things about racism might bring them some sort of ambiguity, whether it's towards other white people or even possibly to you, being that they're learning about essentially the things that you as their mother, their, their mother's ancestors and their mother's uh, right. foreparents have done. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It may, at you know, at, at various points of their life, um, you know, that's for that's for them to to decide. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure they will struggle with that, you know. And when and they're not old enough to to have the interest to kind of read the whole book at this point. You know, it's me kind of telling them about um, the history part of it. Um, and we haven't gotten you know deeply into to my grandparents' role, um, or you know into, for example, my mother's you know defense of of my grandfather that was really frustrating for me while I worked in the book. They're not really sophisticated enough to kind of to deal with that stuff yet. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they, you know, process it later when they're, it'll be interesting to see when they take an interest in reading the, the book, the whole book and, and to see what questions they have and, and how they process it. Um, I mean, I think, I think people tend to go through, you know, phases of, of um you know the way they feel about about these kind of things in in response to other things they're learning and um things that are happening in the world, so I'm sure it won't always be a positive view of white people no um but it will you know i'm I'm interested to see kind of where they go with it and what what their questions are i, I do hope I do hope they're proud that i that I took it on and and I hope that it will you know it will be meaning for meaningful for them that that I confronted this this um tragic history and and my family's role in it. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh caller one nine four three. One nine four three, did you have a question for Mrs. Green? Uh can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh yes. Um I apologize, Mrs. Green. I haven't read your book. I was just wondering like what kind of words do you use to describe your grandfather? Because from what I'm hearing uh, from this show, he's, of course, he's racist, but he, he sounds evil, like, um, in terms of the relationship with the, with the maid and some of the things that he did against her and her people, and also his deception in terms of not revealing his activities in the the segregationist movement, like what kind of words do you use to describe your grandfather? Oh, like, I don't know. I talk about how much I adored him. Um, I talk about, you know, what, what he meant to me as a grandfather um, and what my, you know, experiences with him as a child were. Um, and then, and then I talk about the struggles that I had to, 
you know, to try to to make sense that that the grandfather that I remembered, um, who was so kind and generous with me, um, could have could have withheld, you know, so much from Elsie, um, the you know, withheld compassion from her, and could have failed to acknowledge the harm that closing the schools would do not just to Elsie and her daughter, but um to so many so many people in in the Prince Edward County community. Um I, I you know, I I definitely tried to stay away from using too many, you know, descriptive adjectives in either direction. Um but more, you know, um describe experiences that I had with him and then sort of describe my own reaction to learning um to learning more about, you know, how he acted during this this period of time that we're discussing from 54 to to 64. Um So like I said earlier on the show, I mean, I don't really know that much about what drove him. Um I mean, I can only surmise. I don't. I don't have anything in his own words explaining what what led him to participate um, at the level he did, and and you know, being a member of the defenders and an officer of that group, um, and being you know very involved with the private academy. Like I don't have. I, I wasn't able to interview him, and and he didn't. The, I'm not aware of him having spoken to uh, media about that. He didn't talk to the author who wrote the book um, back in '64. They closed their schools, so I don't really have any firsthand information about, um, you know, what was was driving him. I mean, my my mom's theory is that you know he just he just felt that whites were were superior, and he just felt that he was doing what was best for his children. Um, so I don't, you know, I I. I do, you know, I don't I don't know if I put this in the book, but I do use it when people ask me about um about kind of the turning point for me in the research. It was when I, you know, discovered um it was when I discovered that there was a long period of time between the Brown decision and the decision to close the schools. Um that 5-year period. It was about realizing like exactly how how long people in Prince Edward had to 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 not do what they ended up doing, to, you know, to to for, to be talked out of doing that, or to come up with some some different resolution, right? And so, um, I see the action of closing the schools um, as an act of evil. Um, but you know, beyond that, I I I think I I pretty I stay clear of of, of doing too much, you know, um, description of of you know, personality and more, more um, examples of, you know, of things I remember and and examples of how I, how I personally reacted to, to learning this about him. Um, thank you. I'm just curious because, um, I think that's something that I've heard on this show where people sort of say similar things to what you're saying, and I'm just wondering, like, if because it doesn't make any sense to me, like, if I was to, I don't know, like, hit one of your children and it was described in a way that wasn't accurate. It was described in some other form, and and the person that was describing it said similar things to what you're saying, sort of like, 
you know, I couldn't get into the mind of me and all these things. Like, what do you, how do you perceive that feels to, like, how would you, sorry, excuse me, I have a cold. How would you feel if somebody was basically portraying things in an inaccurate way or wasn't describing things fully? And could you put your, yourself maybe in that position? I mean, would it make people feel better if I said, if I had like a, you know, like a string of really negative words to describe him? I don't know. Well, they wouldn't be negative. They would just be accurate. What? Like what, what, what words do you have in mind? What would make you feel better? Like maybe like racist, racist, white supremacist. Maybe, in fact, another word could even be evil, especially with the close relationship that he, the closest that he had with the maid. And what he did to her. Well, I mean, I th- I think I'm clear in the book that I consider the action of um, closing the schools to be racist and um, to be evil, and that he is ca- and I hold him accountable. Um, and I, you know, and I I think I I don't know. I feel like it's it's the show don't tell kind of. Um, I think it's more effective to say, like, you know, exactly what he did and didn't do, um, is like is is like is more honest to me. That's how I see it. Uh, thank you, thank you, guys. Thanks for calling. For sure, uh, our caller in Michigan. Did you have a question for Miss Green, caller in Michigan? Abby Hurt. Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Gus, to the callers and listeners and to your guests. Um, I had two questions. Um, I think I just heard you um, describe, you said you adored your grandfather. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Can you um, just share with us what you actually adored about him? That's my first question. Well, I don't know. Doesn't I think most people adore their grandparents, but they were doting and loving. Um, you know, they had a had us to their house all the time and I sat with him on his lap as he you know read to me and um we had you know I sat around the the dinner table having you know, meals with him and um and he would drive me out to um his farm and in his truck and while well, he um did chores on his farm and, and spent time with me I mean, I don't think it's anything really, you know, beyond the the usual granddaughter grandfather relationship. But um, because we lived really close to them, I saw I saw them a lot, and that you know that physical closeness just brought a real um, emotional closeness too. I mean, he was they were doting grandparents, um, and you know, I didn't know really about I didn't know any of this, this stuff as a kid, and I really it took me actually leaving Virginia to to learn about most of it. So So you would say as a child you adored him, but as um what like the person who you are today, do you still can um would you say you adore him still to this day? When I think of adore um or the definition in my opinion it's like love, respect, um, worship, um just kinda honor in a certain kind of way right? and hearing of, you know, just his actions and things like that. Um, and I know your family, but I'm just wondering, is that the same sentiment? Um, do you feel as an adult? Um, it's, 
it's complicated. I mean, I like love my childhood memories of him, but I certainly um, was really saddened and about um, what I learned about what he had done, and and really conflicted um, because on the one hand, like I really wanted to like not lose that 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 childhood adoration. I wanted to like remember him as what he was to me when I was a kid, you know, what he, what he always was to me until he died. Um, but on the other hand, I, I didn't like, I wanted to explore his role in, in what had happened in Prince Edward County. And, um, and I really struggled, you know, to accept that he had done, he had played a part in something that I considered so evil. Um, so you know the 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 kid in me you know adores the grandpa you know the adult who knows everything is ashamed. Hmm. Um, and my second and final question is: Who do you think is most confused about um, racism, white su- supremacy, in your experience, um, white people or non-white people, and why? Oh gosh, I don't. Um... I mean, I think that whites don't experience racism, so I, I would. I mean, I'm going to say they're the most confused. Um, yeah, and I think that they, in general, don't know what you know what to do to to make it better. Um, they don't have to grapple hmm. with it in the same way. You said white people are most confused. Uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, well, thanks for um, taking my call, Gus. I will mute myself. Thanks. For sure. Uh, Ms. Green, we had three final callers. Do you have time to nab our, our last three callers? Sure, sure. Okay. Be glad to. Uh, I think this is our retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Ms. Kristen Green? Yes, sir. Uh, the first first thing, uh, I, uh, I think I overheard the guest uh uh, to made one of the, made a quote to one of the callers, uh, what would make you feel better? I thought that was kind of condescending, uh, where the, the caller specifically uh, asked for accuracy in terms of of terms to call what how a white person should be identified uh, when practicing racism. Uh, but anyway, moving on, uh, uh, was was the the uh, the tactic uh, uh, that you write about, uh, did that happen in other parts of the this part of the world? Did that happen in other places? Well, exactly what happened in Prince Edward didn't happen anywhere else. Nobody else closed their schools for five years. Um, prior to to Prince Edward closing its schools, Virginia had, had um, made massive resistance a state policy, and the legislature had granted um, authority to the governor to close any school district that uh, attempted to desegregate a school or schools. Um, and there were three school districts where, where schools um, were temporarily closed um, in in Virginia in, let's see, it was late 58. Um, okay, something I, 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 I have a very small amount of time, so you don't have to elaborate so long on it. Oh, uh, yeah. But uh, 
something similar. Did, didn't something similar happen in, in Arkansas? And Arkansas closed the schools for a year after. Okay, uh, okay. Now, now, because right. uh, I'm, 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 because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to something. Uh, okay. We're, we're talking about both of these incidents happened uh, in the 50s, correct? Arkansas, I think, was the 50s. Yeah. The one, the one you write on happened when? 59, uh-huh, to 64. Okay, in the 50s, mm-hmm. in, 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 in the 50s to the, to, now, uh, my my last question is is drawing the parallel on what is happening in 2016, and what I, what I'm stating is is all across this part of the world there are public schools, public school districts that are privatizing right. public institutions. So it uh, so what is your what is your take on drawing the parallel? For, for, uh, in, in my situation personally, the elementary school that I went to back in the early '60s, it sits in an area that was designed. The area was designed for non-white black people specifically. The property was owned by a white male, and the school that was in the that they built in the area. Uh, 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 now, the children who stay in the area can't even can't even go to the school. Uh, same thing with a high school that the president of the United States a few months ago visited. Uh, this is one of the most uh, uh, highest rated, however they rate high schools in the country, and he visited this high school uh, about six months ago. Uh, so could you expound upon us the parallel from what you wrote about to what is actually happen, happening today? Are you talking about this, like, charter school movement? They're, they're creating charter schools? I'm not even talking about charter schools. I mean, charter schools play a part in what I'm talking about, but I'm not even talking about charter schools. These are public schools, and I'm sure it's happening all over the country. And what's where, happening to this? Well, I'm going to be a little bit more specific. specific. Uh, what is what is happening is not now because of special programs at these high schools, your child can't just walk into that public school. They have to qualify to be able to go to that high school. And there is a lot of talk that I've been hearing lately that uh, the future plan for a lot of white people who have power to actually eliminate the word public school from this part of the world. So I just want to uh, uh, let you expound. Now you can expound as long as you would like to uh, on on the parallel from what you wrote about to what I see is going on today. I appreciate the question. I, I'm afraid I won't be able to give you a great answer because I'm I'm not – I'm not very knowledgeable about that specific issue. I mean, I do know that some of the ideas are that, you know, that, I mean, specifically where I live in in Richmond, Virginia, the Richmond public schools are struggling to, um, you know, to attract um, a wide variety of students. And so I know that the, the school district is trying to appeal to more kids and keep and keep enrollment in some of the schools that, you know they would have to clo- otherwise close if they don't keep enough students, and so they're adding, um, for example, like a middle school near me is adding um, like sort of an arts um, curriculum to try to to attract more students. Um, 
But you're right, then, you know, then then sometimes these schools end up becoming exclusive to the students that they're meant to serve. Unfortunately, I'm just not an expert in this, and I, I don't have, you know, I haven't done enough research. I don't know enough to, to have a, um, you know, an opinion that, that is very valuable on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, appreciate that. Retired uh, firefighter. Uh, our caller in Canada, did you have a question for Ms. Green? Oh, okay, I just unmuted myself. Okay, I have one. I actually have three questions. The first one's uh, what's the racial makeup of the area, of the town? Um, I think now it's um, closer to like. I want to say like 65, um, you know, like 60, 65 white and like 30 black. And then there's like 5% other, you know, now. Um, but, yeah, I should know that off the top of my head. I'm sorry. I can't remember okay. exactly. I but roughly. that's kind of roughly. Yeah, that's roughly yeah. what it is. And it was a little closer to parity. Like, um, I think it was it was like 55 percent white, 45 percent black or something, almost close to 50-50 at some point. Mm-hmm. And some people attributed um, that like racial parity to, to being why, one reason why Prince Edward um, was a community where this happened and perhaps that whites um, were feared an insurgency. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's true or not, but that was, that was one theory. Okay. Um, Second question, how would you describe just briefly the racial attitudes now, like right now? Um, I mean, I think things are better because there is more interaction between whites and blacks than there historically was. You know, growing up um, as a white person there, I really didn't have opportunities to, because I didn't go to the public schools, I didn't have opportunities to mingle with people of color. Um, and now there's a really, you know, well-funded public library, public library where whites and blacks can sit side by side at computers. There's a YMCA where whites and blacks. you know, baseball and softball team. So I think there are more opportunities to understand each other. And and this Moat Museum is a great place for both whites and blacks to come in and kind of share their own stories and um, to be in an environment where they can listen to what others' experiences were. Um, it's, it's kind of a place you can come back regularly to, to have conversations if that's something you're interested in. Um, and so I think that like a lot of progress has been made. However, I've been you know really saddened by by the denial of the history by a number of people that you know that I knew as a child growing up there. You know the unwillingness to to confront this um, history, the desire to to you know to push this history under the rug, um, to keep it there. You know, and and so that that's probably been one of the um, saddest things about about writing this book is is realizing that there are many people in the town who who still in the community that um still don't want to acknowledge what happened there and and the extent of the harm it caused okay now for my third question considering okay. that those those kinds of denials refusals 
to confront racism, which I guess is obviously, as you know, is not exclusive to your town. In light of how, like, because I, I didn't get to watch the whole discussion, but I guess you agree that there's a system of racism white supremacy. Of course, yes. Okay, okay. So continuing from that, do you think necessarily that integration for black people specifically is the answer, like integrated schooling, is it, uh, do you view it as progressive? Why or why not? Do I view integration as progressive? Well, schooling, integrated schooling, like an automatic sign of progression. Um, I don't, I mean, the latest studies that I've seen, like, show that everyone's performance, white, black, brown kids, like everyone's performance is enhanced. School performance is enhanced by being in a mixed environment. Um, and that, and that, you know, one of the only ways to bring up performance and really like low performing, um, high poverty, um, you know, schools that, that currently are, you know, high percentage, all black or all brown is to, is to have them be more integrated. So based on that, I mean, I still think that that's the right answer. Um, I don't know how progressive it is. Okay. That's all my questions. Thank you for answering. Okay. I'll meet my one. I know. Uh, the caller at, uh, nine, six, eight, five. I think this is everybody that I see on the line. Anyway, nine, six, eight, five. Did you have a question for Miss green? Yes, may I be heard? This is Tom Smith in New York. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. We can hear you. I had some phone issues earlier. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, ma'am. How are you? Hi. Um, I missed some of the um, call trying to get my phone line thing um, working properly, so I might be asking you questions. That's redundant. If I do, I apologize. Um, what race was Jason? Oh, he's um, part American Indian, part, part white. American Indian, part white, and what would the what would your children be considered? American Indian or white? Yeah, I mean they're they're I I consider them multiracial. I mean I don't know how they'll choose to identify, but they're 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 part American Indian. Um, I think I mean my husband often tells people that he like identifies as um, as being brown. You know that's that's. Or because he doesn't have a connection to the cultural side of being American Indian, um, so he identifies more with his like just how the world sees him as being a brown person. Does he person. receive any benefits for being an American Indian? Um, not that I know of. Oh, okay. Have you ever been involved with a black man? Um. I mean, I had I had some black male friends, but not like a relationship per se. Oh, okay. Um, do you consider your grandfather and your grandmother to be racist? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about your parents? I think some of you know. I don't. I don't. I don't call them racist, but I think some of the views that they they held or hold like are not as progressive as they could be, and at times you know have seemed racist to me, but some of those views are kind of um are fluid you know or or I viewed them in a specific way when I was you know asking them questions about something so no i don't I don't view them as 
as racist, you know, but that's I don't I don't know that it's for me to to judge necessarily. Okay, um you answered the lady's question when she asked you earlier, uh who's more confused about racism, white people or black people? You said that blacks were more confused. I said whites about, were. Um whites were more confused. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's more aware of race, white people or black people? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, aware of what part of it? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a complex question for me to to just jump right into. Um, I don't, who's more I mean, aware I think... Of the other, who's more aware of the other races of people in their surroundings, white oh, people or black people? I don't I think whites sometimes, I mean, this is like a... a gross generalization, but I think they tend to be more, um, like, interested, like, more curious about what everyone's race is. You know, that's, like, the questions that my husband and kids get um, and friends get about, what are you? Where are you from? Like, that that tends to come from white people. So if that's what you're referring to, yeah, I, would, I think that um, whites are definitely more interested in, like, nail, nailing down, pinning down exactly um in general, whites are more interested in pinning down exactly what somebody's race race is. Um, but but that's very, again very general. I don't really have any way to to gauge that. I got you. My last couple questions for you. Okay. Um, was the, um, was your black nanny? Was he also your your parents' nanny, or your mother, or your father's nanny as well? She wasn't really a nanny. She came like she came like once a week and and helped my help my mom my mom would leave i guess she was it was almost like a babysitter because it was one day a week but um she she did watch my mom um for i think two to three days a week when my mom was a kid so yeah it was like a two generation thing um so but she's she has never babysat my children and it's interesting because um she like but she still i think she still views me in that's it's hard for her to get beyond the, the thing that I was like uh, her employer. I'm like, Elsie, I don't like, you know, like you can just, I'm not, I don't have like an, any authority, you know, like over you now, but I think it's because of the, the, or nor did I as a child, but um, she didn't feel it that way. And I think it's just because of the historic nature of their relationship. It was, it's, it was hard to move beyond sort of that employer, employee, um, you know, like the, the way that that she viewed it. You know that that I I was connected to that because my, my grandparents had employed her and my parents had. Okay, um, that, I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for your oh. answering my question. Oh, thanks for your call. For sure. Glad we got him in after the phone issues. Uh, I think it was one other person slipped a, a hand up really quick. If you had a quick question before Miss Green exits, did you want to get your question in? 2842, quick question. Good evening, Gus, and good evening to the guest, and good evening to the other callers. Green. Good evening. My, my question, Miss Green, was, um, so do you think that your grandfather was ignorant when he was practicing racism? Ignorant about what? Just an ignorant that person? He, that he was practicing, that he was being a racist white supremacist. Was he ignorant of that fact in his behavior and his actions? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't... 
I mean, I don't think that was like a part of the discussion, you know, around the table. Um, I think he probably just did what he thought was right for his community and for his kids, you know. I mean, with in the hindsight of history, we can look back and say that that's that that's what was happening, sure. But I don't think that that's. I don't think I definitely don't think that's how he viewed himself. Okay. Um, thank you. And my last question is, um, with your children, as they grow up, will you use proper terms when you uh, discuss their great-grandfather as being a person who practices racism, white supremacy? I mean, I haven't thought about the white supremacy term as much as, as you guys have. Um, and so maybe that, that is something that should you know be more a part of my lexicon, but definitely like no, I think I, I will use the term racism for sure to describe the action that he and other white leaders in our community took against um, black children. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gus. I'll meet my line. Right on. Glad we uh, got your question in as well, sir. Uh, we had a person that was listening in. They just uh, wrote in. Um, they wanted to know if using the term, or I guess even before I get that, I just, I checked the book as, as you were talking, the word evil is nowhere in your book. Um, cause you had said that referring to what they did in closing the schools as an evil act, um, that term is nowhere in the book to describe it as, as evil. Um, but their question was, um, why don't you want to categorize, clarify these people's behavior, the whites, your grandfather included, grandparents uh, in closing the schools. Why don't you want to clarify, categorize their behavior beyond being racist? Doesn't simply saying their behavior was racist minimize their actions. Wouldn't it be more clear and truthful to state that what they did was a criminal terrorist act due to the fact that they were racist? That was their question. Uh no, I just don't think that – I mean, that doesn't work for for me, what I wanted to accomplish with the book. Um, I mean, I understand your your listener's perspective, but that's not necessarily mine. Um, so – and I, and, and I think you're right um, that evil didn't appear in the book, but I've been using that term um, regularly when I give talks um, to describe – you know, sort of what I came to, the way I came to to think about um, about my grandfather and others, um, white leaders' actions in Prince Edward. Hmm. Okay, right on. Uh, appreciate hanging out to to nab the extra callers with questions and what have you. I did sure, want to make sure that I, for sure, I did want to make sure I got in before you, before you exited. I'm really glad that I read uh, Bob Smith's book. They closed their schools. Um, just because his is, his book is not a memoir, right? It's just, you know, this is what happened. Uh, he does the interviews and he gives you uh newspaper clippings and what have you, but it's not a, a memoir about, you know, how he felt or what he experienced going through all of this as a white journalist doing his reporting. Uh, I would def I would encourage that one much more. I did for me, um, your book, I felt like it was, or I will even retract the word feel. Uh, I concluded my thoughts were that, it seemed very much like what I would expect from a white person writing a book where it drifts a lot into your personal experience and your wedding and uh, you going back and doing this research, talking to all of these people and your children's birthday parties and what have you. Like it just seemed very 
removed from the story that we're supposed to be focused on in terms of Prince Edward County and this what I call a terrorist act uh, in keeping these black children out of public education for five years, deliberately doing so, in many cases gleefully, proudly uh, doing so. It was very difficult. And some of the things that I pointed out already, it just seemed like what I would expect from a white person uh, writing this sort of book and, and could even be classified in my view as an act of racism and how that sort of thing is written. As I said, in some of the words that are used that they were, your grandparents were products of their time, that Elsie was part of the family. Uh, and even as I said, in terms of it, it giving the impression that progress is being made with quote unquote interracial relationships or white people and non-white people hanging together more. That is definitely a major conclusion I had in reading the book. And, and even some of the people that knew you were coming on the program who started reading it, they had a similar feeling uh, in reading the book. It just, it reminded them of, of the help, uh, as I said, in, in certain portions, but I definitely want to make sure I got that in uh, to make sure people didn't think I was going to wait and try and say that when you were going to say that to you uh, directly, it's, it's, it is not a book I would recommend in terms of giving accurate, honest information about racism, white supremacy. I think it is, is greatly lacking uh, in doing that, being as accurate as possible with words and describing what happened. And I, I think that's the case for a lot of white people who write about these incidents. And, and I, I can even expect that because you're not just writing about white strangers, you're writing about your white family members and their role in this. So I would expect that to be a, a major problem, to be as accurate as possible in really indicting what your grandparents did. Um, but well, I appreciate your opinion. Thank you. For sure. Journalist, author, Kristen Green. We'll be talking about her book, Something Must Be Done, about Prince Edward County. Grand to have you on the program and uh, appreciate you sharing a bit of your Wednesday evening with us. Thank you kindly. And uh, we'll keep a lookout for your uh, future projects. Okay. Take care. You too. Context of white supremacy. Uh, folks have any Comments they want to make sure that they uh, get in before we wrap up. I'll make time to uh, to do so. Uh, even <laughs> that at the end. Love it. Love it. Appreciate your opinion. <laughs> but I, uh, I definitely would encourage if you want to get more information about what happened with uh, what happened in Prince Edward County, which is in my opinion, it is incredible. Um, as I said, I mean, just imagining closing schools for five years on this basis. It's incredible. If you want to get more information, even though it is a white author, they close their schools. In my view, it is much better uh, than this book. You don't have to hear all the stuff about the pool party she had with her white grandparents and all that other stuff that we don't need all that. Uh, in my view, I think that's even some of that narcissism where the focus comes back to the white person and what they felt, what it was like for them, her moving around, going to California, going all these different places. Uh, they closed their schools, does not have any of that. It's just straight. This is what happened. Factual information. This is what was in the newspaper at the time. This is what people said at the time. It was published uh, in 1965. So it was right in the thick of uh, all of this. But Bob Smith, uh, you should able to get a copy if you can't find it in the library I think you can get it like online or what have you and it doesn't it shouldn't cost you an arm and a leg um, I got a used copy and you know it didn't cost an arm and a leg I don't think but I would definitely recommend that book I read a portion from it the other day uh, on the Monday program lots of uh, just fascinating uh, information and you can even go back and listen to the program that we did at the end of uh, 2012 uh, we had Mr. Uh, Grogan on the program. Uh, he, Brian Grogan, 
Uh, he has his own website. He did a documentary film on this very topic. He just changed the title. His film is They Closed Our Schools. But he was on the program 2012. And as I said, you can go back. You can hear the anecdote where he talked about how white people deliberately burned Bob Smith's book. They closed their schools because they did not want truthful, accurate information uh, to get out. Bob Smith is a white man suspected racist, too. So you should keep that in mind as you're reading it. But. Even that being said, it has much more accurate information in my in my view. You will learn a lot. A um, couple quick tidbits um, that I wanted to make sure that I got in uh, before I get to callers. Um, number one, and I have to I meant to uh, send not on a heads up that I was going to do this because he's called in many times. I'm sure people who've been listening to the cows for a while have heard not on not on the program called in before. But he, and I think the program with Mr. Grogan, he called in to talk about compulsory education and saying that he didn't think it was uh, constructive, that he thought it would be better for black people to, to not be uh, in the public school systems as they're currently constructed under white terrorism. uh, And that it would be better. We could miss all of the, you know, false information and fake programming and just everything about the, the way that environment is constructed uh, is not to our betterment. Um, And we talked about it and and I've given my differing opinion as I was reading this book and seeing the results of what happened to some of these black children who missed out on five years of education, both the the older black children, uh, black children that were like 13 when the schools got closed. So they missed like all of their high school years uh, because of this and even black children that were six, seven, eight. uh, So they missed like first through fifth grade. Uh, because of all of this and seeing how it played out for them, it had disastrous consequences. Like they did studies years later and Prince Edward County had a higher rate of illiteracy than the surrounding counties years after this happened. Uh, and she even has interviews with some of the black people where they're adults and they're in their thirties and forties and married and can't read because of this. Uh, I vehemently, strongly disagree with that position that we would be better not being in public schools just the way that they're constituted, that nothing would be better than being in these public schools. Uh, and and I'm of the opinion and, and just full disclosure, Dr. Kamal Kamban, he's in agreement with 909. Right. <laughs> he said he I asked him and he said that uh, he thinks it would be better if we were not there. I do not agree with him either. Um, he, lots of great information, but I have a different view there. Totally. Um, there's life. It's not like you don't have a lot of black people who dropped out of school, right? Like you could do generational studies. I mean, you could go, this is something that it shouldn't just be theory and people talking. Like it should be very easy to go out and get evidence. Okay. Let me find some black people in their thirties, twenties, forties, fifties, eighties who dropped out of school and see how their life has evolved. Has it been constructive? What are they doing? How are they, how have they used their life to work against racism or even just, you know, to have a constructive existence? What has been the product of them not, you know, being in public schools as they're presently constituted? I haven't done that uh, experiment, but at least from the research that I have done on people who have done that, generally it does not end up with people doing lots of constructive and wonderful things and you want to emulate what they've done. I'm not saying that you got to go to college and all that, but just people who K through 12 dropped out, 
didn't participate, whatever the case may be, couldn't had to work racism, white supremacy, racist codes to schools or suspended them, whatever the case may be. I have not seen a lot of constructive uh, results. I have seen a lot of this is exactly what racists had in mind. And we are just going to stick it to them further and make their whole existence on this planet horrendous and as difficult as possible. Um, again, this is when there should be lots of evidence. You shouldn't have any problem being able to put your hands on some black people who dropped out of school and just, you know, what was the result? How did things work out for them? And, and let's come to a conclusion. But just from this alone, I do not see any evidence that, yeah, the black people who were locked out of schools for five years, that they ended up being much better off because they missed all of the racist programming that you're going to get in the public school system and that sort of thing. I don't see any evidence of that at all. It's just lots of really sad, pitiful stories uh, and people who ended up being crippled, not just for one generation, because then you end up having black parents who have a very bad relationship with school and have a lot of educational deficiencies. As I said, high rates of illiteracy in this group. Now they can't help their children as much with school. And that ends up being reflected in their children and the relationship that they have to school. You just end up having generational trauma uh, in my view, and that's that's something you can look at the research because whites did a lot of study about what happened, uh, the after effects of how this played out on black children uh, who suffered uh, through all of this. Um, one of the other things uh, I wanted to make sure uh, that I mentioned, um, it is <laughs> there are a few events that I can look at in terms of just getting information about what dedication is. Uh, about us not having an understanding of what it means to be white. This is a fantastic one to study because you get to see local, national, can't say global, but at least local and national, how this incident played out. And you had presidents when the decision came down that, you know, you got to integrate, quote unquote, integrate schools and all that. President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, who don't do are helpless seemingly to do anything about this with president Eisenhower. He didn't agree that school should have been integrated anyway. So whatever, he wasn't going to going to make this happen. JFK at least gave a lip service to saying that he thought something should be done about this, but he wasn't able to get this problem corrected either. Uh, and it just, for me, that just further shows when you're seeing governors, United States senators who are saying, yeah, forget the Supreme court. They're not going to push us around and make us do anything these nigger children are not going to school with us and that's that uh, and to just see how that plays out for years and the planning that went in and i mean you got hundreds of thousands of dollars being generated to create these private white academies that they generated these funds for years they constructed a new facility for this white academy that cost four hundred thousand dollars they were able to build it at two hundred fifty thousand dollars because you had so many white people that were willing to donate their time labor expertise material it is incredible uh and i didn't even have any knowledge of this i was right in Virginia. I grew up there. I went to high school there. I went to college there. I didn't get any information about this. Nobody talked about this. My parents didn't talk about this. Teachers didn't talk about this. The, the place where this happened, Farmville, Prince Edward County, it was like 45 minutes drive from my hometown. Maybe not even 45 minutes. I went there, hung out there the whole nine, never heard anything about it. That goes back when we were talking before 
about the importance of talking about racism. And as I said, just talk about things that happen in your area. If you're in Virginia, it's tons of things you can be talking about. Just state history. You can go take a little drive, take little trips and get all kinds of information. You can tour these sites and learn tons about racism. Same thing if you're in Arkansas, if you're in New York, if you're in Florida, it's all kinds of things that have happened in these areas. You should have an A in racism, white supremacy on a city, state level and that is one of the main ways that you can use to teach your children about racism it should be total i can't even say incorrectness it should be beyond unacceptable if you are a child born in virginia a black child born in virginia and you don't know about this it should be totally unacceptable you are a black child you're born in mississippi you don't know fannie lou hamer you don't know medgar evers totally unacceptable. Just use things that happen right in your area to teach your children about racism. That's it. Uh, we'll check in, see if the folks who uh, dialed in have any comments that they would like to share uh, about the information that they heard on the program. If we have any folks that are in Virginia, definitely you should chime in if you have a comment or two uh, that stands out about what you heard during the broadcast. Um, in fact, I'll check in with the people who, if you didn't get to participate, so I'll check in with the folks, uh, seven, eight, what is it? Seven, eight, six, six. And the caller from a block number. Did you two, uh, have comments? Cause I don't think you all got to ask questions. Do you all have any, any comments that you want to get in? Caller last four digits, seven, eight, six, six. And the person that dialed in from a block number, did you all have comments you wanted to get in? Yeah. Can I be heard? Yes, there we go. Nine oh nine is they're on cue, right on. So you can give us a <laughs> rebuttal. No, no, I knew I called in for a reason, but uh not just joking. But I was curious, um on the curriculum of the uh of the school, like was it uh do you know like where they stood in the state? Um you know, I was just I was just curious what I was I was I was gonna ask her, but uh, you guys were running out of time. Like do they have any famous senators or anything like that that came out of that um out of that school or really i'm just curious about the curriculum like were they really given um high level uh, education at that school which school are you talking about the white academy or the all-black school before all this happened prince oh prince edward was the um prince edward academy school. yeah prince edward they closed the the school they closed down was an all-black school? They closed all of the public schools down, um, and they opened. Oh, okay. uh, They closed all the public schools down, right? So the all-black schools were closed, and the all- all the public schools were all white at the time. Um, or let me make sure. So they, they had separate schools for white and black public schools. They closed all of those in 1959 through 1964, but they opened a private white Academy, Prince Edward Academy in 1959. That was exclusively for the white children. The black students didn't get anything for those five years, but the white children had uh, Prince Edward Academy. And that just stayed open. Even after they uh, opened public schools back up in 1964, they kept, uh, Prince Edward Academy open. It's still open today. It's just under a different name. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I agree, man. Like that's extraordinary. You know what I'm saying? And it basically like their, their, their premise was based on a lie. Uh, is, is, is that a fact? Like they were trying to say, like it, it was, um, 
because of like rape issues and things like that. Like their whole premise was basically based on a, a lie. That was a part of it um, that, you know, uh, black children were going to rape white children and there would be amalgamation, miscegenation. I mean, that's standard racist rhetoric, but the way that they tried to couch it, uh, like the main newspaper in Farmville at that time was the Farmville Herald. Uh, it was ran by a white man, uh, Senator Byrd, who was former governor of uh, Virginia, was U.S. senator at the time, uh, and other whites who were in powerful positions and the white people like her grandfather. They took the position to not put this on racism, to say that it was a state's rights issue, which is, you know, that's racist rhetoric, too. But to say it was state's rights, that the Supreme Court could not compel them to provide compulsory education. That was the legal stance that they took. You can't make us provide funding for public education and we're willing to go all the way to the Supreme Court to say that you, the federal government, cannot demand that we provide uh, public education. Wow. Okay. Okay. Deep. Yeah, that was extra. So anyway, I'm going to read that book by uh, Mr. Smith, the one that you recommended, um, the more accurate uh, book. And uh, I'll probably broach the whole uh, compulsory education another time because I'm sure people have comments but uh, yeah man thanks again for sure if you want to give your uh, give your response before we wrap up we'll definitely uh, make time because I knew that it popped up just on this very subject matter that had popped up uh, before where you uh, we talked about that on the program you gave your view that you thought it would be better to not have it at all Uh, the caller at uh, 7866, did you have comment? Because you didn't get to get a question in either. Uh, 7866, did you have commentary? Oh, good evening. Uh, hey, this is the Bronx caller. How's oh, it going? Good right on. Good to hear from you, sir. Yeah, you as well. Um, yeah, I was glad that uh, the caller um, uh, typed in the uh, question. I wanted to ask, but... Um, how she was like giving you all this weird pushback. I mean, it was like listening to her. It was like she was like at a knitting circle or something. She was just very kind of like do 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 do. You know, like she's talking about this awful, you know, life altering stuff and you know whatever. So you know, we know what that is. But um, where she was uh, saying like that, you know, it's not important to like whatever uh, rate how how racist the people were. But then she didn't even want to kind of accept the the um the distinction of being racist per se. I don't know. But um I wanted to ask her if uh if she ever made fun of her of her um like if she ever made fun of her maid, like to her friends or something, you know. Um, like what in what way like she her maid. Because I know I went to kind of a um, uh, I went to a prep school up here in, in like a pretty prestigious prep school, which happens to be in the Bronx. But um, you know, most of my classmates were like you know pretty wealthy white people, and uh, I had a I had a, a friend when I had right friends when I was you know in the single digits age. I had a friend who like he had a maid who was um. Uh, you know, from the West Indies, you know, she had accents like my grandparents and he used to make fun of her, you know, when she wasn't around, but, you know, she really doted on him and she really, you know, treated him like a family member and she really, you know, really, you know, treated him like, you know, like not just with respect, but she treated him like she really liked him 
but he would like make fun of her and stuff. So I just wanted to ask her that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would have appreciated uh, hearing her response on that one. It's it's quite a few of the like I I, I was talking about this book um, with a listener uh, off the air, and I told her that just the very beginning. I think I read that passage where she was talking about how she was part of the family and they loved her, and her grandmother cooked for her, and they got her Christmas trinkets. And oh my God, I even forgot there's a passage uh, at the it's straight out of Driving Miss Daisy, where her grandmother, when she's older and she's in uh, like an old folks home, a facility for, for elderly, for the elderly and Miss Green's white mom drives Elsie to her white grandmother who's in the facility so that she can spend time with her. Her mom, grandmother, excuse me, perks up and is all excited to see this, uh, her black maid to see her. And it's like, Oh, this is my long lost friend. I was like, this is totally driving Miss Daisy. Like, Oh my God. Like, uh, that's why I said this. I mean, it, the same racist, uh, rhetoric and the same racist nonsense that you get typically where it gets minimized, uh, in terms of this, enormous act of terrorism in my view even treason it would be accurate to call what they did it just gets minimized and you end we end with hey everything is better white people and non-white people are having sex the maid ended up coming to see my grandmother as, as she was about to pass away and you know all they needed was the scene where Morgan Freeman, uh, Morgan Freeman feeds uh, the white woman sweet potato pie or pumpkin pies as the credits come that's all we needed it's like man this is <laughs> the same racist tripe I'm accustomed to seeing would be embarrassing if they had any type of like real freaking moral core but like it's not do not expect it <laughs> do not expect it right right on uh if the other i think we nabbed the folks uh 909 and our caller in brooklyn uh who didn't get to ask a question but the other folks who dialed in who had a hand up you all should be here as well if you had any uh comments you want to make sure you got in Yes. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, on the uh, the conversation about uh, uh, the uh, non-white black woman that worked in her home, uh, that kind of like is close to me because my mother, uh, for a long period of time, uh, to finance finance uh, herself and her children, uh, worked in a uh, white family's home. Uh, they called it day work. Uh, that was a popular name for it, uh, day work, uh, uh, from Monday to Friday. And uh, I never met the children, the white children that were in the house. The only thing I did know that they were in and around my age. Uh, but the only time that I, I, we would hear from them every now and then one of these, one of these white people would call our home and it would be, obviously it would not be an, an adult. It would be a quote unquote child. And they would ask for, they would ask for my mother and call her by her first name, which in my opinion is a, is a, uh, level of disrespect being disrespectful uh, uh, in that light uh, that I never forget. 
so I'm pretty sure uh, your guests had the same relationship with with uh, her uh, 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 the black the black female that worked in in, in the home. Uh, and and I saw a little bit of it tonight. Uh, am I crazy? Or I, like like I mentioned before, when I when it was my chance to speak, I noticed from a caller that came before me when he was he was mentioning to her about accuracy in defining acts of racism, and she made the comment. She made the comment. Uh, well, what 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 would make you happy, or something like that. You know, which I thought was very condescending. You know, the real slick way that white people uh, do uh, say in order to, in order to kind of like uh, be insultive, or be uh, to, to in, in a in a in a joking type of tacky manner is what I'm saying. Uh, that was attacking this incident that that I observed, and uh, yeah, uh, and. The whole the whole idea about what I notice about white people who who write or speak on racism, they're very soft on on uh, on articulation of, of words to define it to its most razor sharp most razor sharp level, and I think uh, and it's evidence to me that that's done on purpose. That's done on purpose uh, of that standpoint, and in turn that. If it's done on purpose, it's also an act of racism that the white person is practicing, because they want to keep they want to keep the the lid the lid of racism on on the on the on the uh, they, they want they wanted they wanted to they wanted they don't want the truth to get out is what I'm saying they don't want to participate in in providing the truth of racism. And uh, so the whole idea in practice, and it, and I think it's a, and and, I, and in my opinion, it's a it's a conscious one uh, to to kind of like uh, spray perfume on the uh, stench uh, as much as possible. I'll speak on it, but I'll I'll soften it in my in my speech. And that that that's some of my thoughts. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think even at the very beginning of the program, when I asked her about my definition uh, for white supremacy, she said that her definition is a lot softer than mm-hmm. the definition that I use. And then when she mm-hmm. like walked through it slowly, uh, the only parts that she didn't agree with was she said known universe and dedication. I don't know if that's dedicated. Uh, to it and in my mind there is no better illustration of white dedication to white terrorism dominating terrorizing black people than what happened in Prince Edward County I mean to close public schools for five years I mean why and to like wind up again as she stated in the program and I mean this is just fact this was not a overnight thing this was like as soon as the Brown decision came down in 54 like oh man those niggas are not going to school with our children we'll just close public schools that'll be that and they went about fundraising and preparing to do this and as with glee it was not a oh man this is terrible it was whatever we're done with public schools we'll just be moving forward and that'll be that and you know we dare you to make us fund public schools that was pretty much the attitude that was widely expressed and not just in prince edward county this went all the way as i said senator bird and the governor at the time large numbers of white people like right on show them do it 
and her, and her intent, her intent on writing the book is 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 very incorrect because it has no parallel on what's happening today. I think if you're very serious about in your writing about something that actually did happen, if there's some parallel to what's going on in the past on, on, on to to now, then you should include that in. Even if it's not in the book, when you're when you're talking to other people about your book, to have knowledge and understanding of that, so that, that kind of like tells me that she's not very serious about that. They have, they, there's a pub, there's a public the public school that I'm talking about. There's a high school that if I was still growing up in the area, if I was still in the area where I grew up at, I can walk to this place. Matter of fact, I coached there last football season with a president, Mr. Barma visited that school. You can only get in there through a lottery system. Now, who's controls the lottery system? First of all, a lottery system just to go to school. You know, they'll, they'll say, they'll give you all of the good points about it. You know, how, it's, a, it's some sort of attractive program that you can get your child into, blah, blah, blah. But this kid's right across the street. They can't go to that school. And I know it happens a lot more places. You know, as far as that concern, and 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 there's a whole lot of talk about the idea of closing down, well, making the word public school extinct. You know, so there's a parallel from what she wrote a book about. Thank you. I suspect she is a little bit more informed about that than she may have let on, because she does mm-hmm. talk about in the book how today schools in this area, Prince Edward County, Virginia, are woefully underfunded and specifically because people think of them as black schools. Uh, They still have a high number of black students in the public schools because a lot of the white uh, students, they go to these private academies and what have the Prince Edward County Academy is still there. It's just not under the same name, Uh, but they go elsewhere. So they are, I mean, some people are saying deliberately in their book, they are deliberately underfunded because people think of them as being black schools and they don't want to fund black schools. Uh, and that's not right. anything that's exclusive uh, to Virginia. That's, that is widespread. Even one of the callers wrote in during the program that in Illinois, uh, they are looking to get rid of uh, compul- They're in agreement with 909. They too are looking to get rid of compulsory education in Illinois. And I think we have had long running dialogues about Chicago and black people's struggles uh, in Chicago. Apparently there's a, a group of white people that think it would be better to just do away with public schools that that would make, that would solve right. some problems uh, for folks and mm-hmm. widespread. Why? So I suspect she's probably a tad more informed than she let on. Yeah, there's a march. There's a march that's taking place in in Detroit about, what, three, four hours ago? <laughs> you know, uh, of, you know be, because, uh, because of the schools are being ill-funded and and just about every face I saw on the CNA in, in uh, report were were black teachers with black faces, and I'm pretty sure they were talking to most of the students that go to those schools are non-white. Yep, 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 yep. It's going to be widespread, widespread. You can just watch that happen. The erosion of uh, public and really just anything that is about public resources, particularly as they stoke the uh, at least just keep spewing the statistic that there are going to be growing numbers of non-white people in this area of the world. Uh, just having white people say, well, we're just not going to have any kind of quality uh, public services, public education, uh, public hospitals, anything, uh, public resources, if it's going to benefit a large number of non-white people. Um, 
other folks have comments they want to make sure they got in? Can I be heard? Uh, let's get our caller in Michigan. Um, really quick, I just wanted to um, say I agree with the last caller, um, how condescending the uh, guest was, in my opinion, with her um, just comments and just, I, I guess, you know, it just seemed like she just thought her attitude was just really condescending. So I um, found it offensive that she would describe her um her adoration of her grandfather, um, especially hearing his participation and his hand and the closing of the school system. Um, I specifically thought it was interesting that she was very um, soft, I guess, with the words, uh, you know, describing him as a racist and, and, and just, you know, his acts being racist, but, um, she was very clear and, and, and accurate, I guess, with describing her adoration of her grandfather. So, um, just hearing these white guests more and more for me is proof, um, that white people are dedicated to the system. And, um, it's just, it's just more concrete proof for me. Uh, so I, I'm just really studying this and paying attention to how, uh, you know, they write these books, they come on the show, they are, you know, open to the discussion. Uh, she's welcoming the callers. Oh, thanks so much for asking the questions. And, oh, thanks for calling in. And um, it's just proof, you know, that they have no intentions of, of, of trying to be serious about replacing the system with justice. Um, I don't, I, I missed a lot of the show, but I didn't get the, from the part that I, I heard that she was interested in, or, you know, her purpose of writing a book was to have anything to do with um, anything, but just promoting what her grandfather, you know, participated in. So, um, it's just interesting. And I, and I appreciate it Gus. um, on Monday, uh, when you had the other, the guests, um, I was really interested in trying to get, uh, time to listen to this show tonight, because when I think about five years of denying children or just black people or just people, period education, um, five years, that that's just, it's sickening. Um, and, 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 I, and when you put it in, you, you really broke that down. You were like, you know, if you're in the ninth grade, you, your whole high school years are gone. If you're in the fifth grade, I mean, when you, it, you just really painted a clear uh, visual image of that. And um, it's just amazing to me to hear her adore this person. So, um, and again, uh, she felt that white people were most confused, which is a complete, um, it's just interesting that all, you know, all the white people so far feel that, you know, they're, they're just white people are most confused. So I don't know. I just, I just wanted to just say that, uh, her, her choice of adoration as a word, uh, to describe her grandfather 
was just interesting to me, and I appreciate um, just trying to understand the usage of words, the definitions, getting clear understanding of what people mean when they say some certain words. It really um, helps me understand things better. So thank you, and I'll mute my line. Right on, right on. That product of their time uh, is another one because she said that in the book. She, I thought it was important because she said on the program what they did was evil, but that's nowhere in the book. If you read it, nobody is classified as being evil for what they did, her grandparents or any of these other white people who did this. Uh, but she does say that her grandparents, uh, that they are a product of their time in doing all of this. And I, again, like I guess I've never heard anybody say, well, Adolf Hitler was just a product of his time. So, you know, we can't judge him too tough for what he did or any of the other Nazis. That's just, Hey, that was popular back in the 1930s, 90s. I've only hear that applied to black people and the terrorism that white people dump on us perpetually hourly. Uh, other folks have comments. They want to make sure they get in. Can I be heard? Oh, I had a quick one. Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, right on. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Um, you know, I hate that these things happen, but um, I love these type of stories because they really show out, point out how the system works. You know, um, voila, Katrina. Um, you did a show about this years ago, and I always have used this as an example. You know, they shut the school system down for five years, and, you know, look it up. You know, and um, it's always been a really good example. Um, yeah, the Detroit schools, utterly racist. Um, I think the firefighter touched on that. Gus, you do excellent research. Um, when you brought up the doggy park, but there's no money to fund the museum. I mean, that was just excellent. Um, you know, you're always right on with that. Um, and, um, I just wanted to say, you know, when I was looking at the news today and they would, well, this whole week, but, um, when I saw that this was about Prince George, the schools, it's it's kind of like um, what's going on in Flint in a way, you know. I mean, it's very similar to me. I get a lot of correlations. I mean, for three, four years, these people have been drinking leaded water. Um, just terrible. And I'll mute my line. And um, thank you. Uh, Roz, you were going to comment? Uh, yes. Um, I was going to say, in reference to the, call, the female caller before Thomas in New York, um, I agree that that description you gave on Monday, last Monday, in regards to um, the effect, the cumulative effect of um, this racist, terroristic behavior on these Africa, Af American African children was just staggering to me, and it gave me a lot of pause for thought. And um, there was a quote that said, uh, why, why kill you when I can just not educate you and get the same results? And... Um, that quote really just speaks volumes to exactly what you said. I totally, um, I, I agree with you in the sense that um, I think at least some semblance of education is better than none because at least with a, even a small amount of education, you can try and educate yourself in some form or fashion. Whereas if you get nothing at all, you have no options whatsoever. So, um, you know, I can see why other, you know, other people would take the other stance that they prefer no schooling whatsoever if it has to be a public school. But I just take the same stance as you do just for that that reason I, I actually knew someone who was pushed through school and um didn't know how to read at all and you know his life was not good at all so trust me um it's not good so beyond that 
in reference to uh, the tonight's guest, wow, she was just a special kind of racist to me. Actually, I found listening to you, you and her dialogue, um, I found that so fascinating. Originally, I wasn't going to ask any questions at all. Um, I was going to wait to just comment. And then when she discussed her children, that's what made me ask those questions because from listening to her on the show, and that's one thing I like about you having white guests, is that we get to see such an array of white personalities and how racism expresses itself uniquely in different white people. So you can kind of take an assessment when you come in contact with different types of white people, um, how they express their racism, white supremacy. And I just found her to be a really special kind of racist. She was very deceptive. She didn't really answer your questions. Um, uh, and, and I just think her, her, her um, condescension was just really, I was just like, wow, she is so white right now. And for her to be telling the story that she was telling, and to be so cold and detached really just gave me the impression like she just had such a reptilian detachment from what she was discussing, almost like she was a spectator. Um, and I think the book was more about her memoir than it was actually about the, uh, the actual incident. And I think the incident was actually a backstory to her life story. And that's probably why I read how it did. And I'm not going to give her a dime by buying her book or even give her an iota of my life force to sit and read it. I just think from what I heard, I got enough from what you discussed. And um, when when she was talking about the maid uh, and how she would refer the maid would refer to her um, as if she was an adult or with the respect of an adult, even when she was a child, just made me think of how abused um, our women were when they worked in these houses for white people. It made me think: Did her grandfather potentially sexually assault her at some point? Because that was a big thing when you had black women w working in your house. Um, also the fact that she might have, she just sensed, um, the potential brutality she could experience if she didn't kowtow and, and bow her head and do whatever they wanted her to do. Um, and that's why she treated her like she did. And it kind of reminded me of when my mom first moved to this country from the Caribbean. Um, that was actually the first job she had was working in someone's house as a, a home attendant, nursing home attendant. And, um, when she worked, the first woman she went to work for was an elderly racist white supremacist, um, bedridden, and the bed my mom, my mother told me was full of urine and feces. And when she saw my mother, she basically looked at her, sneered, and said, "You like like basically, I didn't call, ask for no nigga to come in my house, you know." And basically, that was the look she gave my mother. So my mother got very agitated. Immediately said, "Oh well, I don't want to be here either. I will not stay any place that I'm not wanted." And she called her boss and told her, "I'm leaving. You better get someone else to get here. Um, and I'm not staying to wait." for them to come. I refuse to sit in an environment where I'm being abused and disrespected. So the lady, the, the lady was in the background yelling, oh, you have to wait. You have to wait for the other person to come. She said, no one was here before I got here. So it'll just be like, just like it was before I got here. I'm out of here. She left and she left the woman crying in her feces and her urine for someone else to come. And hopefully they sent a white person. Otherwise, my mother could really kill us anyway. And um, that was literally like the first job she got when she came to this country. And that was her very first experience. And coming from a country where it was ruled by black people and um, well, run by black people, I wouldn't say ruled by black people, but run by black people. Um, essentially, that was her first acute experience with racism, white supremacy. And it kind of reminded me of that, just listening to that story. And then her acute racism also came. And I, I thought about her, the doozy that her children and her husband must have with her. Um, if they're conscious enough to really have any semblance or understanding of racism, white supremacy, how she could actually say that, and she said it, and actually she snickered while she was talking. She talked about um, actually those Confederate 
uh, statues, taking them and putting them in a museum for posterity. And she thought that that was a constructive thing to do. And I said, yeah, that sounds like the racist white supremacist basically celebrating racism. And then when she went around and talked about her doting grandfather, it was another celebration of living terrorism in the form of her grandfather. So all of that just leads me to say she is one of the most um, refined and repugnant racist white supremacists I've ever talked to and keep bringing the white people on because they just give me a lot of insight into how these personalities manifest themselves so that when you encounter these people in life, you're not fooled by the nonsense they put forward. And I'll mute my line there. Thank you so much. Yep. 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 Be prepared. Be prepared. Uh, other other folks, did we miss anybody who had a hand up, uh, who had comments they wanted to make sure they got in? Uh, Gus, can I share something real quick? Yes, sir. Um, just, um, this conversation about education, um, I think, well, I read the, uh, the article that you had on Facebook about um, Dr. Welsing and uh, um, sort of the school and uh, her passing away and her stress and whatnot. And I actually go to Howard University, so I actually travel on Georgia Avenue or like 16th Street. And uh, when I read the article, it, it was just like astounding because the... Um, that area where Dr. Welding lived and where this, it's like a Jewish community. It's like, it's like a few blocks. There's like a community center. There's even like an elementary school and across the street on 16th street, there is a synagogue. And so it was so, I don't know, surreal when I read the article because during when the whole black lives matter thing was really uh, in motion, there would be people there. um, These Jewish people with signs, with like Black Lives Matter and all of this stuff, and <laughs> just to uh, just to read the article and realize, well, uh, these people, uh, you know, were major co- contributors to Dr. Wilson's death and her basically just general uh, like sensational levels of stress and whatnot. It was just incredible how they can. It, it was just interesting, even today's uh, conversation about um, how they can use like education and even religion is such a great weapon when they they have these signs up saying Black Lives Matter, but they're actually killing someone that's black and so important to, to many black people. Um, thank you, and I'll mute my line. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that That is a, a key component in all of this, the religion of white supremacy. Uh, the when they closed the public schools and they opened up the private uh, academy for whites, they needed space, right? They couldn't use the public school facilities. So they turned to a lot of churches uh, to hold classes until they got uh, an independent building constructed a couple of years later in the early 60s for the high school students and all that. They got that down the road. But initially in 1959, they were using a lot of uh, white churches uh, to have these private white academies for the little white children to attend. So the religion of white supremacy was also a key role uh, in what took place in Prince, uh, Prince Edward County. And even there were demonstrations uh, in 1963. The black students were demonstrating. They were upset. Uh, they were boycotting white businesses and saying, we're not going to spend any money here. Outstanding black self-respect. They went to a white church. Uh, and they were just going to sing. They were peaceful uh, just outside this white church on a Sunday, um, marching, singing songs, hymns. And the white 
patrons at the church called the police and had them arrested uh, on the grounds of the church. Uh, this is infamous. They have photographs of this and all that. Uh, unfortunately, they had some, you know, reconciliation ceremony a few years uh, ago, like the 50 year anniversary of all that and invited the white, uh, black uh, people to the white church and apologized and, you know, tackiness ensued. But yeah, the religion of white supremacy was a key, uh, was key in all of this playing out as well. Uh, the caller in Canada, did you have a comment you wanted to make sure you got in? Um, I was just trolling because I didn't get to listen to the whole entire discussion, unfortunately, this time. But I found it disturbing that she kept ex explains everything as a progression, even though, you know, I heard one of the calls, if I remember correctly, brought up how these acts are constantly being repeated in one way or another. And the idea that we sort of always have to be around white people to get anything done. I noticed I've never heard any white person that, that does any sort of counter-racist analysis or observations ever suggest that maybe black people are better off doing something on their own because of how whites are. I, I don't, I've yet to see that. That's, that's all I got to say. I'll meet my mind. Agreed. I think we talked about that on the broadcast before as well. I completely reject that notion that black people need to be in the company or presence of whites to be able to accomplish anything academically. That's total nonsense. Uh, you're just going to be around racists who are going to sabotage your constructive efforts in one way uh, or another. And in fact, Stuart Book's book, uh, Stuart Buck's book came to mind. He is a white man, but his book Acting White talked about how uh, even that terminology that you're acting white if you're doing well academically didn't come about until we started going to school with white people and some of the other uh, disastrous effects of us switching and having to sit next to little white Johnny and little white Jane in the classroom on uh, our educational success or lack thereof. He was on the program in 2010. Uh, mm, who, who, who's the name of that person? Because I've been trying to look for something about that. That's why I asked, sorry. Uh, Stuart Buck, B-U-C-K, Buck, B-U-C-K. He's a white man. His book is called Acting White. And uh, he was on the program the summer of 2010. Very interesting book. I would definitely, he has a really eloquent passage where he talks about how if there was a mandate that churches had to be quote unquote integrated, uh, how it would the logic would have followed that because of white supremacy the black churches are inferior so the black people have to go to white churches and so black pastors end up becoming you know parking attendants or you know custodians in the white church and that sort of thing and you get all these crummy positions and all the black people who had important leadership roles in the black church that they would be done away with because you're going to the white church now so you get to go to their nice facilities but you are on the low end of the total pole so to speak in terms of being a, a person of prominence in the white church with this integration he says that no one no one would think about that no one would do that with churches but that is exactly what happened with education that you had black educators black principals black teachers uh black faculty members that really became janitors or totally unemployed when you had this integration effort and then what happened with students where you're acting white if you are succeeding academically and that was unheard of nobody even talked that way uh before quote-unquote integration happened Right on. Cause I had a quick, 
I had a quick question. Um, it was actually from 909. Um, I was listening to an archive episode um, from a long time ago, and 909 had mentioned a book called The Quarrel, and it was um, the argument between poetry and philosophy, I think, but he didn't give the author, and I wanted to ask him who the author of the book was because I found, found a bunch of variants of the title, but I wanted to know who was the author of the book he was referring to specifically, if he remembers that episode. Um, <clears throat> no, nah, I don't remember, but uh, um, I wanted to give out my uh, email address. It's code or die909 at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, the way my brain works, it, it, it'll probably pop up, you know, in the next few minutes or next hour or so. So you can just hit me up if you want, and uh, I'll give you the... Uh, I'll give you the uh, the author or, or any information I can. Thank you. Can you just spell that for me again? You said it was, was it Cole, C-O-A-L or C-O-D-E? C-O-D-E. Okay, C-O-D-E 909? Code or die. Oh, or die, excuse me. Code or die 909 mm-hmm. at gmail.com. At gmail. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I will definitely reach out to you. Thank you oh, very much. That's important too, man, because that's, 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 we see that every day. It's the, you know, the moderns and the, and and the, um, it's just a, it's just a whole dialectic. But uh, yeah, I'll definitely sh- shoot you that information. I'm grateful. And, Thank you so much. Oh man, no problem. And uh, anybody else that wants to understand this whole compulsory edu- education or not education, but this compulsory schooling uh, topic in more depth. Um, can hit me up at that email address to get some understanding. Because the way I'm hearing it being brought out, uh, I don't think that's, those are my views necessarily. I don't. I'm not sure if I even expressed those views um, in that way. I thought I kind of clarified uh, my position on that before on the cows. Um, it's, it's it's not even yeah it's not even really an argument really for me man I'm I'm compulsory schooling I'm against 100 um, percent I just remember something as far as uh, it says like uh, literacy is a form of slavery until the until the method of critical thinking is exercised if you just look at compulsory schooling I think it was, I think it was brought about like in the 20s or so um, the people that were behind that whole uh, system where eugenicists, um, um, you know, uh, racists, and they had a plan for, uh, they had a plan. That's, I mean, the compulsory schooling was not something for the people to get, you know, an education or whatever. It, it wasn't set up for that. So, you know, it was what you see today as far as how uh, the, you know, the intellect of, of uh, the people. And uh, the dumbing down of people is is, is what schools were set up for. Um, as far as the uh, uh, evidence, if you will, I, I I would just cite. And like I said, if you if you email me, if you want to, if you want to get some better understanding, um, just email me. But you know, you have this this one that comes to mind is, is war. Um, during the war, World War One, World War Two, Korean War, Vietnam, or whatever, you have you had standards to get into the military, and what they were finding out is that you, you know uh, you so you know you have a, a tracking of 
of people's, uh, you know, even those people that are going into military, a certain amount of uh, uh, where they were as far as their um, education. You know what I'm saying? So, and teaching teaching someone to read is like the easiest thing in the. It's like it's it's almost innate to learn how to read. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So that's 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 easy. You know what I'm saying? My thing was talking about the schoolhouse, the schoolhouse where you had generations of of of, of students teaching each other. You had the little kids; they were being learned by kids that were a couple years older than them, and those kids were being learned by a couple years older than them. Then you had somebody dedicated to education that had the schoolhouse that was teaching, um, you know, all of these different generations of of people, uh, you know. And whatnot. That's what I. That's what I'm about. That's what I. That's what works. Put it like that. I'm. I'm I want. I'm. I'm for what works and against what doesn't work. Um, you can. I can't. I don't. I don't agree with closing down all the public schools because if the kids aren't going to be doing nothing, it's like, oh, you know, are you going to? What, what choice do you have? Are you going to sit down all day or are you going to walk a mile and, and come back? You know, you just like you say, okay, well, you walk a mile. That's better than just sitting down and letting your muscles atrophy or whatever, you know. So, yeah, so if the choice is doing absolutely nothing or, <clears throat> you know, or going to school, I mean, that's that's a no-brainer. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. But, um, yeah, I mean, anyway, man, it's just... The schools were set up for. Oh, and another piece of evidence: if you look at like like 1920s, if you have you know this compulsory uh, schooling, you know where you have to send your kids to these. But if you look before then, some of these blacks, like in the 1800s, whatever, um, like super geniuses, man, like uh, George Washington Carver or whatever, uh, Benjamin Banneker and stuff like that. Like these people that were. You know, in, uh, in so, uh, like a uh, exhaustive list. You know, in the 1800s, 1700s, there. You know, what, what people were studying, people were reading, their level of education, the genius that they had, and then you know, after uh, compulsory schooling came in, where you, you're basically, you know, it, it, you know, it, like I say, reading is, is is easy to be taught. It's not what you read. It's I mean, it's not learning how to read. Like, well, you learn how to read is easy, but what you read, the stuff that they teach in school, the math is wrong, the history is wrong. <laughs> they, I mean, I'm talking about straight lies they teach in the kids. The science is lies, the black holes, black energy, all this physics that they teach, and all that stuff is is lies. So the history is lies. So, I mean, like, you, you, you know, when you go in this, you go into school to, to, to learn how to read, that's, that's that's ridiculous to me, man. I I don't know. <laughs> that's no argument, man. You know what I'm saying? They're teaching straight up lies up in there. So you're just basically saying, well, public schools need to be there because the kids don't have nothing else to do. Okay, if that's the case, yeah, they need to, you know, they need to be somewhere. But what you're gonna get? And that type of mentality and that type of situation where you just have to warehouse these kids so they don't cause they don't have anything else to do, that's the mentality of the of the of the administrators and, and, and everything. It's like these kids don't have anywhere else to be but here. Uh, you know, they're not here to get an education, they just don't have nowhere else to be. It's, you know, it's 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 not gonna produce a uh, a result of any substance, I don't think. You know, so I don't know. I don't know, did you, guys. I don't know if, 
did you say because uh, I think this it came up before it was because uh, I'm in agreement like it, I, it was never that public schools the way it's set up now are great compulsory education or compulsory schooling uh, is is great and it's set up for us to be spectacular and to have the next generation of uh, George right. Washington Carver with it that was never it it was if they're not going to I think it was that you stated at one point do you recall saying that it would be better to not be in school uh, as opposed to being there with all of the inaccurate information and everything that you're going to get, that it would be better for you to not be there? I'm not sure, but I follow the answer to that now. Do I think it would be better to not be in school than to be there and get inaccurate information? Um, I I would just have to, have to have a caveat, if I could, to say that if you were being taught how to read and, and, and write the active the active the active literacies you know if not at home but you know at the, at the, at the aunt's house or something like that then yeah it's better not to be there you know I, um, but if, if if you're not being taught any active literacies at home or next door then I don't know man like I, I don't know how to answer the worst of two evils like um, but they're both bad, man. You know, so that's just what I—I I don't know. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah, that's that was what I recall from from before. I I might be in error, but I'm. In fact, that would be a good start to go to that program with uh, Brian Grogan uh, from 2012. Prince Edward County, because uh, I think it came up there. But if, I think the choice was presented. Uh, no schooling would be better than going to public schools the way they are. I think you at that time. Uh, had said that you thought it would be better uh, to not be in school. And that was why I said, if, if that is the presentation, and I, I think I said at that time from what I have observed, because I've known a lot of black children that have not been in school, have been kept out of school for years, long stretches of time. That's not there. They're not getting anything to supplement. They're not getting an aunt or a family friend right. or a parent to, to read to them or give them information, take them to the library, do some studying, do some skills, get some training where they're doing something. That's not there. What I've seen is, Television, 12 hours a day, video games, right. messing around. That's how, if it's going to be that or public school, no question. Go to school. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, I, I agreed with you on that. That's what I'm saying, okay, man. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, you know, yeah, definitely. But that's just, yeah. You know, yeah. But it's the same thing. It's, 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 I mean, it's not the, it's, it may be a little better, but, man, you know, if we're trying to, if we're trying to, you know, end racism and white supremacy, man, it's like really not that, you know, you just don't have animals running around in, in, in human form. Oh, did you get that Beast of No Nation? Did you understand where that came from, uh, that it was a Fela Cootie song? Oh, no, I didn't know it was a Fela Cootie song. That's where that title comes from. And he was talking about uh, the uprising and uh, uh, civil rights of black people in that at that time in Nigeria. Oh, that, I, I was I was I was hoping Dr. Wilson, but you know, you know, God bless the dead. I love Dr. Wilson. Um, she never understood that, so I sent you the the information to under so she could understand exactly what that title, where it came from, and what he was talking about that, um, in that title. It was very much different than um, I think. Uh, what she was understanding, but is the movie? Uh, have you seen it? 
the, it's a movie called Beast of No Nation, but the original title is from an artist called Fela. Kuti. Oh, right. I understand. I'm just asking if you have, have seen the movie. I understand the title. Part oh, no. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I haven't seen the movie either. I don't, I was going to ask if, if the movie is in the spirit of what Fela was, you know, trying to get across in his music, but that's that I would be interested in that after I get a chance to, to see the film. Cause it's been my experience. White people can do a very good job of deviating from the original mm-hmm. intent that somebody had, but you know, for a title or, or the way that it was being used. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm. Right on. But if anybody want to exhaust a real history of, of, of compulsory schooling, it's nothing for me. Like I've been studying this for a long time to just, to get you started and understand, especially if you have children and what they what they need to what they need to know, uh, you know what I'm saying as far as and it ain't you know what they need to know to to be. I'm talking about on a high level. I'm talking about high level genius, black youngster. What they need to know. Um, that's what's been taken away from us. So uh, just hit me up. Like I said, I gave out my email address, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll hook you up. Yeah, um, bring up an old program of the cows, like, uh, I can't remember that, I think it was Eric something, but it was the White Architects of Black Education. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, that was, that was, that was, yeah, that was, that was, I was really glad to have read that, that, that'll, that'll lay out what 909 is talking about as far as, like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, talking about, like, the, uh, the way they constructed our, our modern school system basically like it was like a bunch of corporate kind of um uh, uh you know heavily uh religious organizations and corporate like you know post-slavery stuff and just do what you're told kind of i don't know Anyway, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Gus, right. you're as an artist, man. Do you think it's valid for someone to claim to be an artist and but not have an opinion on on like uh, what you know the difference between right and wrong? Like, oh, like have you? I don't know. Is that I heard that used a lot. She used that tonight. Basically. I don't know, man. Like your artists, a lot of a lot of artists, but um, I don't know. Do you, do you kind of get where I'm coming from? Maybe you heard that or no? Um, I haven't. I, I haven't heard that in the context of a person identifying themselves as an artist, saying that they using that as some sort of justification for them not taking a stance on, you know, this being right or wrong or this being unjust, this being incorrect, what's being done, talking about human behavior. I haven't heard that couched in the context of being an artist, but I think definitely it's what she said, I think is very standard in terms of whites uh, taking that sort of stance. I think I said that a few times during the broadcast, but just minimizing and, and not indicting white racist terrorist behavior that that happens all the time and they they will find a myriad of different ways to justify not indicting it and not being accurate about yeah what these people did it was not just wrong it was criminal it was terroristic uh that they will find a variety of different ways to do that that's that is a new one i don't think i've ever heard anybody take that stance and say well on the basis of me being an artist 
I cannot classify this as, you know, right or wrong or incorrect behavior and some of the other uh, things that she did. I can't judge these people because they were products of their time. Uh, it was a lot of that, but I haven't heard it in that context before. But I, I just chalk it up to the saying that that's just another act of, of racism on her part. Normally the code word. Excuse me. Oh, sorry. Normally the code word is I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert or I'm ignorant to uh, that subject matter. Right. Right. I've heard that a lot as well. <laughs> heard that a lot as well. Variety of, of different ways to come to the same conclusion that I, I cannot indict these white people as racist or I'm going to I'm going to uh, pussyfoot it if I do uh, and, and try to give some excuses for why they might have done this and not using the harshest terms to indict what they did. The white gold demands it also. Absolutely. Right, oh, I, I was done. I was done. Oh, I was just going to say I've heard I've heard that discussed in the terms in terms of journalists journalists saying that that they are not supposed to show emotion or specifically take a side. I've seen that done on the news um, quite a bit, um, and I think that that whole concept was something that was placed by white supremacists so they can, like you say, obfuscate and hide the truth. And I think that's the exact approach that she took. But I heard, I remember she did use the term artist as if that was really supposed to mean something. Um, but I've definitely heard journalists say that sort of thing where um, they're not supposed to take any sort of opinion about something. They're just supposed to give you the news as it was given to them. I've heard quite a few different news people, you know, say something to that effect before. Absolutely. That reminds me of Dr. Marimba Ani. Uh, yeah, Dr. Marimba Ani in Yoruga, where she has a whole section that talks about uh, subjectivity and how white people, uh, they profess that you're supposed to be objective when they are never objective. They are always operating from political stance in support of white supremacy every time. And most of the time, they're most devastating at this because they come under the guise of, well, I'm objective. I can't, you know, take a stance and, and give my personal viewpoint or make a judgment. Uh, I'm just, you know, presenting the facts. I'm, I'm impartial. I don't I mean, that's a total lie. And there, nobody uh, is objective. Everybody is coming and they have their own political leaning, their own subjective stance. Everybody, you just the best I think you can do is just to be honest about that, about what your stance is, what your position is. And you just move from there. And racists generally white people do not do that. They do a great job obfuscating. Love that word. They do a great job of obfuscating and making sure that you don't have clarity about what their position is. And you should just go ahead and assume it's going to be something in support of white supremacy. Uh, one more comment. Cause we did way over time. Anybody else have one last thing they want to make sure they got in. I was going to say it looks to me like they just infused uh, rhetorical ethics um, into this, the system of journalism, and that's how it manifests itself as this so-called um, objective reporting. That was my last thought. Mm. Yeah. Very good. They're very good at that consistent. Um, I was going to make sure I in included... Uh, before they wrap things up, this is from the Close Their Schools, Bob Smith's book. And he is, again, a white man, uh, actually a journalist as well. He was a reporter at the time. Uh, and I think he's deceased. Um, I could be. I know he was alive 2012 when I talked to Mr. Grogan. He was alive, but he was certainly older and, you know, reaching the end. But um, his chapter is called The Dissenters, uh, where I said it's not even historically accurate to say that, you know, racists like Christine 
uh, Kristen Green's uh, grandparents that they were a quote unquote product of their time because uh, you had white people at the time who did not think it was the correct thing to do to close these schools. And again, I cannot emphasize enough that does not mean that they were not racist. It does not mean that they were not racist. It just means that they didn't think uh, the schools should be closed down. Public schools should be closed down. Uh, so this is on 210 uh, where he's talking about why white people who didn't agree with this course of action, why they didn't speak up. And just fat, it goes to many of the points that I talked about before, and particularly white ignorance. You cannot be ignorant about racism if you are white. Whites will let you know immediately. Okay, let's see. This is 210. It reads, Others who might have dissented felt their ties to the community were not sufficiently strong to demand action at this time. In spite of the dispersal of housing for faculty through the through the county, the academic community tends to keep pretty much to itself. The dissent that did emerge from the representatives of the gown made their alienation from the town just that much more complete. One observer noted that Farmville was composed composed of three groups of people, the old townsfolk the college professors and the group of transients that included most of Longwood students, Longwood colleges in Farmville, uh, Farmville, Virginia, only the group, only the first group by far the most conservative effectively employed its community voice. Most of all, there was fear of reprisals. The way in which these reprisals worked has been widely misunderstood it is not merely a semantic distinction that Mr. Kennedy, this is a white pastor who uh, vocally said that they shouldn't close the schools down. And he ended up being kicked. Well, I wouldn't say he got kicked out of town, but white people made it very uncomfortable to the point where he thought it was best that he leave. Uh, Mr. Kennedy was not driven from the county as more than one account in the press indicated. Mr. Kennedy was merely made unwelcome. This was the treatment that was used on outsiders like him in the hope that they would leave and insiders like Lester Andrews in the hope that they would either reform or choose silence in preference to acute discomfort. The treatment was fully repressive enough. There was little need for the harsher means as most residents of the county recognized and most outsiders did not. Reporter Josephine Ripley of the Christian Science Monitor infuriated segregationist leaders, for instance, with a series of stories that offered a theme of barely muted violence and widespread fear. Hostility, so the stories indicated, might be near. Open hostility is always a possibility in such cases, but evidence that it was near in Prince Edward County was pitifully weak, really non-existent beyond undocumented accounts of a rock thrown at an automobile of a friend's representative. This was a group of people trying to get the public schools back open. Uh, the more interesting reality was the absence of this kind of hostility. The potential dissenters were disarmed by looks and words and silence. The arsenal of social coercion. Uh, I will stop there, but it is pretty chilling because uh, they do note a few white people here and there who tried to say something that hey we shouldn't close the schools this is not right I don't like those niggers but we should at least have public schools and white people made it very clear uh, you are messing up and this is not going to be tolerated we don't have to put hands on you we don't have to do some of the more 
physical and violent things that whites did in other parts of the South. But we will make it very clear that this sort of thing is not going to be tolerated. And they successfully quieted all of that with the people who the handful of people who did speak out stopped that immediately. Uh, and they even have a, a great example uh, in the, I think it's a whole chapter uh, where some white people were trying to organize to see if they could get schools opened up. This is like year three that they had been closed. They were trying to get the schools reopened and they had a meeting. These white people went, waited for the meeting, turned their lights on as people were exiting, wrote down their uh, license plate number, their vehicle so they could have a record of everybody that was at the meeting, disseminated a letter to everybody in the town of who was at the meeting, what was said at the meeting, and even followed some of these people home. They didn't run them off the road, didn't kill anybody, but just followed them to let them know that they were being watched and that they were identified as people that were not doing the correct thing as a white man, white woman, and that was enough to silence all of that behavior permanently. Can't be ignorant about racism if you are white. Not now, not then. That just doesn't happen to the system of white supremacy, as Mr. Fuller stated correctly. White people will let you know when you are messing up in no uncertain terms. With that, uh, we will wrap things up. If you have any problems, confusion, gripes, feel free. Drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal is in the top right corner. If you're not on PayPal, drop me an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. Um, we should be here two days. Friday book study club uh, study session number seven, Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. Uh, looking forward to picking up uh, chapter six, chapter six, the breath. Uh, looking forward. He was dealing with the religion of white supremacy. Nat Turner will be coming up, I think, right at the very beginning of the segment on Friday. Virginia, Virginia. Loving it. Great, uh, great portion of the book. I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, he writes about all that. But that's Friday, normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Wednesday evening. Uh, thanks for all the callers. Hope you got some uh, accurate information. Always good to hear directly from racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, thank you all. I will again encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of war. Uh, we do not need to be intoxicated. You never know when you're going to bump into Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw. You want to be clear thinking to make the best decisions. I definitely discourage being around intoxicated whites. Uh, I don't even think it's constructive to be around intoxicated non-white people. We have too many problems. We do not need easily avoidable strife in our lives as victims of white supremacy. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cows signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.